This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Oh, I was jamming. <laughs> oh, you muted. You muted. We got to hear about Big Mama Thornton. You got us. You on mute. Oh, I am on mute. So I was like, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is how we starting today, honoring an ancestor, Big Mama Thornton, born this day, December 11th, 1926. Ooh, and somewhere in Alabama, Montgomery, she says, but it was really Araton or okay. Araton, but you know, it was a small town in Alabama. I'm sure it was a farming community, also known as a plantation, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. She had to she had to get the big city in on her thing. That's Montgomery, right. the big city. I went down a rabbit hole this morning researching Willie Mae Thornton. Of course, you know that song because of Elvis, who would not be in existence without Big Mama Thornton, who would not be in existence without Diamond Teeth Mary. And that took me on a whole journey. This I love you for this. I say. Let me say good Diamond Teeth Mary. Diamond Teeth Mary. I, d- stay tuned. There's gonna probably be a movie or something about her in some in some Nubian future. And let me say hello to the Nubians, especially uh good morning, good afternoon, no good good evening to you, and uh good morning, Jedna. Uh my my uh I'm young. My we're apprentices, we're apprenticing in the tradition. <laughs> I'm still trying to make up my mind whether or not we just uh saw a, a, a Jagna transition a minute ago, but yeah, we gonna, you know, that takes a long time. <laughs> we're gonna talk about some Jagnas today, though. Yeah. I, feel, I feel like you put your time in, uh, you know, exponentially. I feel like you you put your time in, you deserve that. Those that say I, I appreciate that. It's funny, we had our uh the mid-Atlantic region of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations is meeting right now. I'll present later this afternoon, but I was able to sneak a few minutes in this morning and our friend Angie Porter presented, um, the cat is out of the bag now. So I'm sure she told you, well, we can tell everyone now, uh, Professor Porter uh, accepted an offer starting in the fall of 2022. She will be a professor, assistant professor at the George, I don't know, at the American University School of Law, uh, her specialty, and it's, you know, it's one thing when we say it in the governance structure, which is the thing that counts, 
But when you have the social structure uh, forced to name the thing that you have named because you won't name it anything else, that just shows you that we will win if we stick to our guns. Uh, she is uh, formally listed as a professor of Africana legal studies. Now, now that now she because she she refused to compromise. <laughs> no, this is what I'm doing. This is what now if y'all want me fine. If not, I go look somewhere else. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so for I'm saying that to say she presented this morning on African protocols and 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 um one of the things she was talking about looking at the ancient Egyptian and then following it through the migrations across Africa and then onto the boats and off to the boats in places like New Orleans with the bombard and so on. She's tracing all this is her intellectual project. Um, she was making the point that, you know, there are protocols. And when you start dealing with protocols, she said, we, we might even need to rethink why we even use that little three letter word LAW. And I'm saying, so when we start talking about, I mean, but but in order to do that, when you say you put in the work, this is this is where I was going with it. The work we put in is lifelong, and we have to recognize that it is, and it's a process. And one thing she said today was when you meet someone, the Egyptians talk about this in the book of Tao Te. When you encounter someone who knows more than you or who is uh older than you or is an elder or an official, she said, you greet them with the type of entry that recognizes that relationship so i feel like you know because we are in the same age mates and we do a lot of the same work in these different valences we're part of that thing and as long as there are those who are in front of us as the egyptians might say mm -hmm. that we recognize that we are co-learners in that cohort now those coming who are behind us it this isn't a question of hierarchy or rank as much as it is a question of putting in the work as you say so wow. I, I recognize that. And especially as you evoking these answers, you, you didn't brought some sisters. I'm going to be quiet now because you, you please tell us some more about how you, you didn't brought these to, sisters. I, into the I don't want, because today we're in the um, social and governance structure. Yes, so, we are. Um, yes, we are. So I'm mindful of that. Yes. But stay tuned, you know, um, because as as you know, we, we talked about last week, that iron sharpening iron, you knocking some dust off my spirit and, and, and awakening some things in me and allowing me to see in the into the future that's what that looks like see into the future by looking at the past that sankofa bird means so much to me because mm. we can't move forward until we go back and that thing that you just said about angie porter tells me um we need to do a better job of sticking to who we are because right. this governance structure is everything let that child I, I call her a child i'm sorry now, i know because that's your student so let, that's it look. Do you see, do you see the lesson in that? You know what I'm saying? That, 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 <laughs> I don't know if that could have happened if she didn't sit in your class. So I'm gonna say this too. You know, we have a responsibility to those of us who are teaching to make sure that we raise up Angie Porters, mm. we raise up the next Greg Carr, the next Karen Hunter. That's our responsibility. But also, those of us who are in those spaces, we should be uncompromising to a social structure that has never meant us any good. We can that? break the back of the social structure because we are that powerful because we came first. Teach that lesson. Teach that lesson. Let me hold oh. up. Let me hold this up real quick since we celebrate ancestors. No, no, uh, this no. is a uncorrected proof for those of you in publishing. You know that this is not a you know, you have a bunch of those. These these are the um the galleys. Yes. Uh my friend Tracy Sherrod, who is the uh, yes. 
executive editor over at um, Amistad Publishing, which is a division of HarperCollins. My, yes. My, yes. My good friend sent me a bunch of books, including this. Ah. And I, I cracked this open. This is at my bedside. And I was like, Dr. Carr, I got to bring. This is Zora Neale Hurston, a set of essays that she wrote. And the title of this is You Don't Know Us, Negroes. You don't, you don't, you don't know us. You don't know my name. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait a minute, hold up. Um, I'm sorry. Alicia Keys, all due respect, young practitioner, definitely in the genealogy. All due respect to Kanye West, the genius in producing that. But let's be clear, that is Cuba Gooding Jr. and the main ingredient. When you're hearing that whole song, if you find it, <laughs> go, go ahead. When I give my love, to you and you hear that's all go look it up cuba gooding jr i'm sorry cuba gooding senior senior everybody plays the fool hurry up this way again yeah no go get yeah go get that song i'm sorry but anyway go ahead that just made me think about it because that whole song singing i'm getting i i no 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 no. i just i'm just thinking about it because because them tight them tight harmonies and then that that piano that comes strangling through y'all think that's alicia keys playing no anyway i mean not only we could bring up hazel scott but we won't not today oh my goodness i didn't Swinging on when she playing them two pianos on the same Adam Clay Powell knew what it was, <laughs> but even he can't nobody slow Hazel Scott now. Come <laughs> on now. In fact, there's a great biography of Hazel Scott. Oh, I can't think of the author's name in a minute. We think about a minute, but I mean Hazel Scott's politics also. Oh my goodness, Hazel Scott. But anyway, um, that was a footnote. Please don't let me do it. The, the, the point is you raising Zora Neale Hurston making this assertion, you don't know us. You don't know. No, you don't. And I just want to, you know, I don't read as well as you. Um, and that's okay. I'm not worried. But y'all, you know, when the book comes out, you'll get it in, in the introduction. It starts off. Um, Who wrote the introduction? She, she did. No, Zora Neale Hurston. Oh, Zora wrote the introduction. Okay. I'm I'm I, saw from, her, I saw Henry Lewis Gates' name on the front. Yeah, I, I'm going to I'm gonna raise up Genevieve West. I'm going to raise her up. I wasn't even yeah. going to mention his name. But you well, the, only, the only reason I say is because the library... Uh, What's the name of it? Uh, so I forget the Library Series of America. And I'm looking over at the one on Albert Murray. They have them all. Grant, I mean, uh, Du Bois. They did a two-volume anthology on Zora Neale Hurston many years ago. And before, in other words, Zora, Zora Neale Hurston has been anthologized several times. And so I'm wondering now if this is a repackaging with perhaps one or two previously unpublished. Is that what it is? Probably. I haven't read it all. I, mean, I just I just started cracking and I was like, I want to read this. Just but this the title one. is perfect. So you went right to that one. I'm like, Talk, me, tell us about it, because I mean, I'm, I, I want to hear about this. One. So let's let's honor Genevieve West, the professor yes. at Texas Women's University, editor of Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crystal yes. Stick. That's the one uh, that just came she, out before that. That's I'm going to give her the, you know, all of the credit for this. Um, Tracy doing their work. Because I think that was Amistad too. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, and then Tracy also did um Black Black Fortunes, yeah, uh, book that immortalizes Robert. That's where I got first uh, saw Robert um, Church Senior. Yes. in that book, and that led us on a conversation in narrative, which y'all can check out as well. Um, right. and also Hannah Elias, and there's a new book about her that Tracy's also publishing that she's doing and, she's, and, she's and she also and she also uh was responsible for putting into print in 2018 the book that we picked for our freshman at howard yeah. and that was barracoon yeah right 
Oh, there it is. Look at it right over there. Oh, yeah, she definitely did that. And of course, that manuscript, Barracoon, the original manuscript, is in the Elaine Locke papers at Howard. So Zorna Hurst, she they had to literally get that out of Howard's manuscript. It's at a black institution, which we'll talk about in a minute as well. So yeah, shout out for real to Tracy Shiraz. She's doing the thing. And then that, that's what it looks like. She ain't budging. So anyway, so I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. Go ahead. Now you were reading the essay. There's no interruption. We are in flow. And uh, so it starts. I'm going to sit right here on this porch chair and prophesy that these are the last days of the know nothing writers on Negro subjects. Ooh. She did prophesy. We are sitting in them. Both, both editors and readers are clamoring for something that makes their side meat taste like ham for to tell the truth. Negro reality is a hundred times more imaginative and entertaining than anything that has ever been hatched up over a typewriter. From now on, the writers must back their rubbish with something more substantial then the lay figure of the past decade go hard or go home. Instead of coloring up coconut grease in their kitchen, go buy a cow and treat the public to some butter. Those are the words of Zora Neale Hurston. And I wanted to bring that because every single week, Dr. Carr, we serving up the side meat, the ham, the butter. Mm. We not giving people chitlins. We not giving them no damn oxtails and their dishes, but we giving y'all choice meat and the full full cow milk churn butter knowledge wise so i just wanted to lay that up at the rim for you uh, go ahead oh no no let's have this come give us the date what was the date on that she it said, doesn't I'm say it, i didn't get too far into this um enough to even this is what leads off the introduction which i have uh you know oh mark I, I got some dark yes. dog ear pages but this is let me see well, well she says the, she says the previous decade Boom. oh there it is y'all got it noah's negroes yeah, I'm embarrassed to say that that one doesn't. I'll have to go pull out my copy of the the anthologies that I have to to see if I. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's in there because well, there's a lot of never before seen, you know. Uh, but they say never before seen, but typically I know, I know, I know. When it's a trade press, it's like I, I never. One of the reasons Henry Louis Gates came to prominence in the social structure was his discovery of a book by uh, Harriet Wilson called Our Nig N I G. And uh, it is said to be the first novel by a woman of African descent in the United States. And I'll never forget sitting with uh, one of our Jagnas, certainly my Jagna, the great book collector, the great scholar, the author, uh, Charles Bloxham, who's still alive. Mr. Bloxham now, I guess, approaching 90. Um, in his office, I worked for Charles Bloxham when I was at Temple University. Um, there's a funny story about that. Maybe we'll talk about that in Office Hours in Nubia. Um, the the, the 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 crux of it is that Bloxon is a reader and a bookman. That's very different in many ways, unfortunately, often than librarians or academics. And so, you know, he didn't. You got to pass tests. And I didn't even know I was being tested the first time I saw him. He came in the reading room. I was sitting there. He asked the librarian for a book. She didn't know what he was talking about. And I said it out of my mouth. He said, what you know about that? And that sparked a friendship that is now. <laughs> I guess that was the early 90s. So what is that? Uh, 30 years. years. Oh, yeah. So, so blocks and, and the book collectors. And Dorothy Porter was alive at the time. In fact, the first time, the only time I met Dorothy Porter was Mr. Blocks introduced us. We came down to D.C. And so um, they were laughing because they knew the book. But 
you know, Gates and them parlayed it like, oh, this is a discovery. And it was like, discovery? How you discover something that people knew about because it had been already been put out? So anyway, I'm always leery when I see the trade. America, the, 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 all of the Caribbean islands and every place, Africa. Hello. Hello, all of the places. That, that's all they do is discover things that already are here. And shout out to Professor Gates because I mean, I've learned a lot from Harry Gates over the years. And I, I want to, I'm mentioning him only because in the context of what we'll be, what we're talking about today, it's important. Um, every generation has to learn to, to every generation has to to acquire the memory. Otherwise, we lose what we've been talking about, this momentum of memory. And so the question then becomes, to whom does the responsibility come to feed that momentum of memory? And Professor Gates, nobody can challenge his intellect, certainly not his work ethic, his energy, his capacity to network. But there is a there's a reason why we had to create an Africana studies framework that holds distinct questions of social structure from questions of governance structure, because it is the commingling of questions in those two categories that leads to a great deal of pain for people of African descent. And Professor Gates has uh, been very adept. He's self-described academic entrepreneur. Many years ago, he called himself that. He's very adept at applying his formidable intellect and network to blurring those lines. And, you know, who's to say the the outcome of that. I think that it is wonderful that we have a renewed um, appearance of Zorna Hurston uh, and her work. That is uh, unquestionably important. And it's very important to have people of African descent in these non-black spaces like Tracy Sherrod, Amistad there. What is it, HarperCollins? What's the, yes. what's the, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. HarperCollins? Uh, I think that it is uh, infinitely more important to have Paul Coates at Black Classic Press and Hakeem Abudi at uh, uh, at Third World Press and my friend Kasoli Kasahun at Africa World Press because those presses are black owned. They employ black people. They publish black authors, and not exclusively, but almost almost you know exclusively black authors. And they're part of an international network of black controlled presses, including academic presses like the University. Uh, of the West Indies Press, uh, University of Wisconsin's Press. This is why Charles Harris was recruited by James Cheek and Andrew Billingsley. Actually, this book just came out. I'm very, very honored to have uh, written the um, the foreword to this book. Andrew Billingsley, scholar and institution builder, Charles Jarman, Professor Jarman, who was a professor emeritus at Howard. Uh, this is Andrew Billingsley, who was the president of Morgan State University. There he is on the campus of Morgan State. He's still alive in his mid-90s. He, uh, Sister Amy Billingsley, his partner, uh, here he is, as Charles Jarman's uh, introduction, and I wrote the foreword after this. I'm raising this because in this book are the proceeds, uh, the proceedings, rather, of a major conference that we had on the campus of Howard University. I'll just show you all the table of contents. I very strongly encourage you to get this book. Um, Black Classic Press just published it this year, 2021. And we had a conference on institution building at Howard in the 70s because when the students uh, struck and, and took over the administration building in 1968 at Howard and called for Howard to become a black university. Um, by the way, there is no black university in the United States. There are HBCUs, but the way that those students thought about black university and the way Billingsley thought about black university still has not been achieved. And a great deal of that has to do with some of the things we'll talk about today. But Actually, wow, that, there's going to be a connection to that in a minute. We'll talk about that in a second. But anyway, I'm, I'm saying all this to say very quickly that 
Billingsley was sent to New York to recruit Charles Harris, uh, the late Charles Harris, now an ancestor, unfortunately. Um, Charles Harris then left Random House and came to the campus of Howard University to start something called Howard University Press. And it was Howard University Press that published Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Black Africa. It was uh, Howard University Press that published Arthur P. Davis. Uh, it was Howard University Press that published a number of uh, books. John Killens had John Killens had some of the institute, some called the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. He was a part of at Howard. They recruited uh, what's my man's name, Stephen Henderson from the Atlanta University Center. He came up to Howard to start the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. One of many uh, institutes they started at Howard during the time. That's when that's when they recruited Donald Byrd to come and start the Institute for Jazz Studies. That's when they recruited uh, oh, 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 Lawrence Gary, Larry Gary, to come in and deal with social uh, social work. All of these scholars, and then they recruited this whole generation of young scholars, Ron Walters from Brandeis, Joyce Ladner came in. And the, the one of the pipelines that fed them was the Institute for the Black World, which was in Atlanta, which is also very important for, for us to understand. Um, but at any rate, I'm saying I like to say that the idea was if it's going to be a black university, it needs to be black. And if we're going to have uh, white university presses, we should have black university presses. And if we're going to have white uh, trade presses, we should have black presses that publish that stuff as well. So uh, it's very important to have a Tracy Shirai at a place like um, uh, Harper Collins with her own imprint because that's a maroon space. At the same time, what Henry Gates has been very adept at doing is helping us recover in terms of new generations learning material, but at the same time, and we're going to talk about that very specifically as it relates to somebody we're going to talk about in a second, you'll see slip in the confusion. And so Professor Gates, who uh, made his academic reputation by discovering, meaning uh, I like the metaphor that, uh, um, what's my man? Uh, oh, the Igbo writer. Oh, I see his face. Chino Achebe uh, writes in his, in his novels, there's one novel, The Arrow of God, Man of the People, I think it's Arrow of God, where the young man goes off to school and he's going to show these white people that he is as smart as they are. So he comes back home to the village and he takes from the village the sacred totem, the sacred symbol of their community, this python. And he puts it in a box because he's going to show it to these Europeans to show that they have a culture too. But the problem is that's not the purpose of that. The purpose is to keep it there in the village. Now you are, you, you want to show them something and what you've really done is take away from your people. They need that. They don't need that. And they'll take, put it in a museum, you know, and then you need Killmonger to go smash some glass and put the mask on. But the point is this, in that process, Gates, uh, Gates showing people that we too have a culture and I've seen him do it in person. I remember I, I was at the school district when he showed up, when they were working with uh, Bill Gates, for this uh, encyclopedia in Carter project. They're going to digitize everything. And they created uh, a single volume that became a five volume set called Africana. In fact, uh, there was a study group in Dallas that asked me to come speak. And, and they said, how much do you charge? He said, I'm not going to charge that. We got to pay you something. I said, I'll tell you what, pay me in books. I got to get this five volume encyclopedia Africana because I ain't paying for hearing. <laughs> so they got me. So I have the volumes, but thanks to them Africans. But my point is this, Gates has always been very aware of how our people are moving and what our people need. And that very thing Zorna Hurston just evoked. That you so, read so, us. First of all, um, somebody said he has a PhD in uh, English literature and language, which I looked up and is true. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure. Not not history. History. No, but I, I, I want to say, I think 
Gates and a lot of other people want uh, social structure acceptance and social structure money yeah. and social structure uh, comfort and access, which is why he was so uh, outraged when he got stopped on the porch of his own house. My man lost it, didn't he? Yeah, well, he couldn't understand. I, I, no, no, Harvard, he I, I taught at Yale. I've done all of the things. What, no, I, but, but what you talking about, what you just read for us, Zorna Hurst is letting you know, oh, that's in all of us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. That day on the porch, it came out of him because he know what it is. <laughs> but this is what this is what we're fighting for. And this is why those of us who are in social structure uh, spaces have to do what Angie Porter did, have to do what I'm doing, have to do what you're doing, uh, which is to show up and not be compromising at all, but also honor people like Zora Neale Hurston, who literally died penniless uh, with this frustration that I can never, I can't even imagine being this brilliant and not being, you know, we're we're now giving her her flowers. She didn't get these flowers when she was living, doing all of these amazing things and having to contort and twist. But what it's saying though is that even in this social structure, we can find these nuggets of truth. So, you know, read all of the things, be be masterful in all the things, but know that you're doing it for the governance structure and know that you're doing it to build the future world that we want to live in. Pull these nuggets and I'm reclaiming it, which is why I had to read this today. Um, I'm reclaiming all of our stuff. You know, we're going to smash the glass, get the mask, get everything out of museums. We're going to build all the world we want to live in because we came first. We are the original um architects of all of the things and we don't need to prove anything to anybody we'll split an infinitive and talk how we want to talk because ultimately this is our or, thing or that, and we are or go to our language right that's that's whatever. What we do whatever we want is my point well, right, well that, i think that and therein lies the real issue that that's a real issue i'm looking at this uh this was in yesterday's wall street journal then in remade west side story again and uh, and I'm raising this because Joe Morgenstern wrote this, and it was interesting. Um, the critique of this, of course, is that you know Stephen Sondheim, who just made transition, and you know the world stopped in terms of Western cultural meaning making. Uh, who said I never met no Puerto Ricans, and when he when he first set out, then wrote what became the Broadway show. We know Rio Moreno, as we know, who was involved with this Steven Spielberg project, um, which is now being staffed, they say, completely by Latinos. And I'm, and, I, and I'm thinking as I laugh about it, I'm thinking about the conversation we had about Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda, who was actually brought in to do some work on the revival. I think it was 2009 they revived it for Broadway um, to make sure there was authenticity. And I'm thinking about In the Heights and the whole conversation about Afro-Latinos. And I'm looking at the trailers and I'm like, here we go again. But the deeper point is that, what, you know, there are a whole lot of people, myself included, say, you don't not, not only do you not need to remake, I'm sorry, remake what you want. But if we go in to see it, now we got a problem. Why? Because, you know, this is the story of imperialism. Puerto Rico is a colony. We understand. And, you know, we just passed the anniversary uh, between the last time we were together and this Saturday, of course, Pearl Harbor. December 7, 1941. And we know that the social structure narrates that as a sneak attack by the Japanese and all of that. And then they say, well, you know, black people fought too. Dory Miller, you know, uh, won the Medal of Honor. He was out there. He was a, a, a Navy man. He was working in the kitchen as a cook, came up on deck, saved his, you know, saved his comrades, manned a gun, shot to the ammunition, ran out. All of that's true. What's also true is that the Japanese that signed a non-aggression pact, non pact with Germany and with Italy was also true 
is that uh, Japan, whether you talk about Manchuria, the rape of Nanking, they are attacking China. They trying to expand their empire in, in what is called the Pacific Rim. Uh, what is also true is that the United States had colonies in the Pacific Ocean, including Hawaii and uh, south of Japan, a uh, little place. What's the name of that place? Uh, oh, yeah, the Philippines. When they took from the Spanish in the Cuban-Spanish-American War, Philippines. Uh, Carl G. Woodson actually worked in the Philippines for a period there in 1903, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember. Oh, and there was another colony they had down there. I think they still have that. Colony. Oh, yeah, Guam. And, so, and then uh, what's also true is that the uh, United States uh, in, engineered a blockade of uh, materials, metal, and then oil to the Japanese trying to cut off their supply uh, prior to the attack. What is also true is that uh, people like Joe Kennedy, who was the ambassador, I think, to Great Britain at the time, did not want the United States to intervene in the war uh, against Germany, uh, saying that, no, you know, Great Britain kind of lost, I don't know, uh, you know, France is gone. Uh, what is also true is that uh, the French Vichy government, which is controlled by the Nazis at the time, uh, gave permission for the invasion of Indochina a tacit in, 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 um, a tacit permission to the Japanese. Uh, what is also true is that um, Charles Lindbergh, a hero, if you go down to the Smithsonian uh, Museum of National Aviation, uh, the Arts and Art, Air and Space Museum, you'll see the spirit of St. Louis and social structure narrates him as a hero. Uh, but what is also true, even if you just want to read a fictional account like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, which they made into a nice little series for HBO, is that Charles Lindbergh was a... Uh, Nazi sympathizer and white nationalists um, who there and there were a lot of them in the United States at the time. What is also true in the governance structure is that uh, during this lead up to World War uh, Two, between World War One and World War Two, that black folk in this country were very leery about intervening in any war because they didn't see the benefit of them fighting in a war only to come back and, and have to fight a race war here. Uh, of course, remember the Red Summer, 1919. Uh, which came after the World War I, 1918. And that is one of the things that drove Josephine Baker out of the country now that she's being memorialized by the French in the Pantheon. What is also true is that between 1918 and 1941, when the United States enters the war because of the attack on Pearl Harbor, ostensibly, which of course, when the Japanese attack, Italy and Germany, because they got a non-aggression pact, have to uh, declare war. And they declare war in the United States the next day, December 8th. And then the United States now has declared war. And now the United States is in a war that many people will have to get in anyway, particularly the profiteers. Uh, I shouldn't say all the profiteers because there was a guy, oh man, his, his son and his grandson ended up being president of the United States. What was that guy's name? He was a senator from Connecticut. Oh, oh yeah, Prescott Bush, who was a munitioner, uh, who, <laughs> let's not talk about who he was and wasn't supplying on terms of both sides of the war. But um, they got in, of course, declaring war after the attack on Pearl Harbor. But what is also true that black people as early as 1940, who record 39 and 40, who recognized, yeah, we the United States going to get in this war, but we ain't coming back and getting lynched this time. So December 7, 1941, the United States is attacked. The United States declares war a couple of days after, after Germany and Italy declare war on them. And now it's the Axis versus, and it looks like a nice sporting event. People, although a lot of people ended up losing their lives, including a lot of black people. Uh, but um, what is also true is that black people seeing this coming were like, yeah, okay. We get fighting in the war. 
because I got property in Columbus, Georgia. I got property in South Carolina. I got my people in Dayton, Ohio, and I ain't trying to speak German over here. So, uh, yeah, I see getting in the war. So we're going to maybe we'll approach this war the same way the Native Americans approach it. Why, why the Native Americans in uniform? Why? Because when you hit the United States, you hit the place where I live. And I was here before none of y'all came. So if I got to get a gun from y'all to go fight to defend it, I will do that. So I get that. But this time, it was a young brother in the late December 1941, after the bombing of, eight, of uh, Pearl Harbor, the United States colony in the Pacific Ocean, one of them named two of the others over in the South, I guess it was the South China Sea. But anyway, point is this. The brother wrote the Pittsburgh Courier. I forget his name. The name escapes me at the time. But they printed it in January 1941. And the Pittsburgh Courier used this brother's letter to start what they called, and some of y'all heard this before. Many of y'all probably maybe studied it for young people. Go look this up. The Double V campaign y'all know winston churchill y'all know y'all friend the hero the constantly drunk winston kirk churchill in england v for victory it was their finest hour yeah that kind of thing but anyway but black people are like yeah here go a v for victory here go another v for victory in the united states in fact we're gonna have a double v stick that eagle behind the double v victory overseas and victory in the united states against racism because if you think we coming back here after this war is over to take another ass whipping you got another thing coming and so <laughs> black folk black men and black women remember now the women's army uh, auxiliary corps mary bethune was responsible for this in part black women volunteered in that war mary bethune said 10 percent of these volunteers should be black women and we ain't doing it out of love of country. well you know they're gonna put the love of country stuff in there but what they're really saying is we are going to advance every time y'all have a war y'all make money y'all do this y'all do that we gonna do it too and remember we talked about this over in nubia and we talked about it over here as well uh and arnold hedgeman writing in her memoirs many times the trumpet sounds all of her stuff uh the, the the book that was written about her until there's justice tracing how she worked with a philip randolph so that they pressured Roosevelt when they come down with the Fair Employment Practices Committee and Executive Order 8802, desegregating jobs in the wartime military. That's 1941 before the attack on Pearl Harbor because they ramping up to fight. And I said, I'd say this. We ain't gonna talk about this today, but it made me think about it because in between last week and this week, we had December 7th, 1941. And that's narrated a certain way in the social structure. But if you are not careful, the social structure will cherry pick your participation to narrate a fiction about who you are. So when I think about the fact that we see these black authors, black writers, black projects in these white controlled spaces, we know two things are going to be true. Number one, they will always have the unintended consequences because you can't control it. Well, let's say three things. Number one, the social structure understands now that they have to concede. If you're going to keep the hierarchy in place, you've got to absorb some of this resistance. Plus, it doesn't cost you anything as long as it don't transform into revolution. As long as it's beautiful art and music, as long as you get everything from black people to quote Florence Tate by way of her son who just made transition this week, Greg Tate. As long as you get everything but the burden, this is Mama Tate. As Greg Tate would say, his Greg Tate when he had locks. He said, my mama used to say this. They want everything from black people, everything from black people, but the burden of being black. Mm. So so they can enjoy Zona Hurston. They can make a movie. They can make a play. In fact, they made they made a movie out of their eyes of watching God. And they cast uh, Janie as uh, Halle Berry. And, and we all winced. But hey, it's great. Now, 
We still no, gonna no, kill no, Breonna no, Taylor. No, 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 it wasn't Halle Berry. It was um. Was it? it wasn't. Uh, it was Halle Berry. Yeah. Uh, Dan Dan Dewey Newton. Was it Tandy Way? Tandy Way played in. Oh no, you're right. You're right. You're you're right. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was thinking I, beloved. I was thinking beloved. Beloved. I'm in a whole other thing. You are absolutely no, right. It, is, no, it was Halle Berry. No, but my that's bad. Good, Let me shut my mouth. That's no, why. No, I'm no, 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 no. That's that's actually perfect, because that casting becomes damn near interchangeable. In fact, in this new version of West Side Story, apparently they've got an uh, interracial gang that's fighting against the Puerto Rican gangs. And one of the critics is like, do you really think that, first of all, do y'all know that there are Black Puerto Ricans? And second of all, you think that poor Black people in New York would have sided with the white gangs against the Puerto Rican? Do you know any history? Do you know the Young Lords Party? Do you know what happened in Vieques? Do you know anything about Arturo Schomburg? Do you know any? Do we really have to have that conversation? The answer is yes. Why? Because the social structure is never going to curate anything that's going to topple it from the hierarchy. So when you see a, a publication appear, you've got, and I said those three things, you've got a social structure, number one, that says we got to incorporate some of this resistance. So people say, well, this is progress. It's not progress, it's a concession. It, you know, it's like creating a rock and roll hall of fame and then inducting everybody black, no matter what they sing or, or, or dance or do. Why? Because you created the genres in the first place. And now in order for you to maintain relevance, you want to keep throwing stuff out and bringing people back in. I'm going to talk about that in a minute too. But uh, so that's number one. Number two, what you can count on when you see these things happening, you can count on this as well. You can count on some of us who are absolutely committed to governance thinking. Like a Tracy Sherrod. Like a Greg Tate, who we'll talk about in a minute. Figuring out to the best of their ability how to operate in that space and widen our space to be able to think without compromise, to work without compromise. And that is extremely heroic work, is extremely taxing work. And it's based on personal choices that come from experience and deep thinking. And it's all very valuable. This isn't a critique of that work. I'm not one of those people who would engage this thing critique, because as we say, this space that we're building is really about that work of, of pouring that clean glass of water. And as a result, I mean, it becomes very important, the objectives, because every generation has to constantly restate the case, has to constantly restate the case of why we need to have these spaces. In fact, why we need to return to our spaces that we control. Now, I want to get into a whole conversation about sovereignty and self-determination. These are important concepts, but in many ways, they too are borrowed from Western logics. This is one of the things Angie is working on. We started, she said, I'm not going to use the word law. I'm going to use the word protocol because even that's not a word to use. But until we figure out ways to recover different language and recovering language isn't just about creating your own language. Recovering language means building from momentum of memory, because that's also as far as my, my way of thinking goes, that's also a bit of a trick. The, the idea that black creativity can start from now and be equally forceful and equally useful as having the momentum of memory of generation after generation of generation of generation because every generation has thought about things and when you connect those things together you can see the good you can see the difficult you can see the useless now you can see the very useful now and you can have a conversation with yourself that's why we have to have the governance category so that momentum is, memory is very important but again every generation has to do that work has to constantly restate that case and when we see um the fact that Zora Hurston coming out of Florida, Eatonville, coming out uh, of Howard University as undergrad, then going to Columbia University, um, navigating those spaces 
navigating those white spaces, whether it be Franz Boaz at Columbia, but working as well with Carter Woodson at the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, uh, who helped fund Zora Hurston to go to Alabama. Um, whether you read Sylvia Ann Juice's book, Dreams of Africa in Alabama, whether you read my friend Natalie Roberson's book on Africa Town, which is still there in Mobile, Alabama, or whether you read Barracoon, that Sister Sherrod, uh, who uh, enabled a, a sister named Deborah Plant, very important scholar who did the work to bring uh, Barracoon back to print. Um, because Barracoon was not, again, in the spirit of our nig, these discoveries, so to speak, Barracoon had been published in a different form in the Journal of Negro History. Why? Because Woodson helped pay for Zona Hurston to go down there and sit and sit with Kasula Lewis. Lewis, European name, Kasula, the brother who had been a teenager when he was snatched up out of West Africa on that ship, that Barracoon, that ship, the Clotilda, and sent into, in fact, that's Natalie's book's name, the slave ship Clotilda, that brought in the last ship recorded to come into the United States and it was during the Civil War. And so I set out to say that we see Zora and Hurston grounded in black institutions, working at the behest of black institutions like the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, who then is able to go uh, record this brother. And when you read Barracoon, as we say, it's just such a striking story because I mean, you know, and near the end, she says, can I take your picture to the elder? You know, the elder's uh, wife has made transition. Um, the elder's uh, child, their child, one of their children. I mean, you know, you think about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Aubrey. You think about Sandra Bland. You think about uh, Laquan McDonald. You think about all the women and men who have lost their lives in recent memory. The momentum of memory will help you understand when you go back and look at the Lewis's child. These two Africans were brought over on this ship. And their child was a victim of the Patarollers in Alabama. So she gets all these stories and she's going out. she bring them watermelon one time. They sitting up eating watermelon. She brings it. They go out to the, she takes them around to get food. He, you know, I mean, all this stuff. And she's sitting with this elder because she know the protocol to use the word Angie is playing with now. She know the protocol. You don't just walk up on old folks, start asking them questions with a tape recorder. That's like the WPA narratives. They'll tell you whatever the hell they want you to know and they won't tell you the truth. So it's interesting when you read that passage. Yeah, there's a distinction between the thing you think you want to consume and the thing we are. You gonna eat what I cook or you ain't going to eat. That's going to be. Anyway, that's the lesson for the civil rights movement another day. But the point is that as she is taking this, uh, this, 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 this mouth to ear history from this Jagna, this elder who can tell her about these sisters who came in from, a, uh, from another nation. And by nation, I mean another group of black people who if you don't go get these people, you're going to get on the boat yourself. And he don't know all that history. All he knows is that these black women came in and they were fierce warriors and they were cutting off heads. And next thing you know, I'm on a boat. <laughs> all this kind of thing. So he's telling us, and then near the end, she said, can I take your picture? Now, that's after a long time of getting to know him and him beginning to understand her, not only as someone who's interested in his story, because people come for that. They used to come to Africa Town and try to gather the stories, curate the stories. But as a daughter, almost, when I mean, we talked about Ophelia settled Egypt, right? I mean, as a daughter, almost, I'm going to tell you something I wouldn't tell them. So, he says, yeah, you can take my picture. Hold on, wait a minute, hold on. I said, what? Said, hold on for a minute. He goes down, takes off his shoes. Zora writes, you know why he took off his shoes? He said, because after the Civil War was over, we went to them white men. And it's like, the war over? Yeah. You say we free? Yeah. Okay. Put us back on a boat and let me go home. 
The white man was like, I don't work that way. What you mean it don't work that way? Y'all came and got us. When you say we free, take me home. No, nah, it don't work that way, y'all. This is what, how do it work then? Well, if you can get the money, mm. then you, so what did they do? They started saving money. And when they couldn't save enough money, they said, well, we got enough money to buy this land. And that's where Africa Town came from, Mobile, Alabama. Mobile, eventually the birthplace of everybody from Satchel Paige and Henry Aaron, the hammer. Come on now, Mobile. So every time I see Henry Aaron, I think about Africa Town. I think about them Africans. You know, but anyway, the point that I was going to make is that he took off his shoes. Why are you taking off your shoes? Because I couldn't go back to Africa where I'm from. I couldn't go back to my home. But when I take off my shoes and my feet are in the dirt, I like to think I'm at home. If you're going to capture my picture, mm. if you're going to capture this moment in time, I want you to capture my image with me looking at that camera thinking I'm at home. I mean, this is, you know what I'm saying? This is the momentum of memory. This man never going to see home again. Eventually, as Deborah Plant writes in the book, and then we had our Howard students go out and do this research and study this, eventually where Africatown is in Mobile now, that's one of those places where you see environmental racism, dumping grounds. That's where they put the factories over there and all the runoff and all the, and then the high cancer rates and all that stuff. It, right there where Kasuba Lewis is buried, right there where his wife and children are buried, right there is where they're going to dump on black. These are the black communities. These are the black cemeteries. There have been several books written about the black cemeteries in these places that become victim to highways coming through or victim to dumping grounds for chemicals. But I still have to say that, you know, we were able to read Barracoon because thanks to these sisters in the Amistad imprint, we could get, I guess at that time, that year, that was 2018. So we had probably about 1,500 freshmen. But you can get them like that. Now, we have had books from black publishers, Ayikwe Armad, the eloquence of the scribes. It becomes difficult. He's in Senegal, his distributors in San Francisco. We told him in enough time to print enough copies. And, you know, Paul now has the printing press. Black Classic Press. So it's not just a publisher, he's a printer as well. So if you need that many books, Paul can make it happen. And see, but that's a, that's something you got to build up to. He tells the story all the time. Walter Mosley is very good friend Walter Mosley. When they were negotiating a deal, he writes and talks about this as well. You know, that can overwhelm a black publisher if you don't have an in-house capacity. So when the big trade house is like, look, we're going to give you, I was a yellow black uh, radio broke down. I forget the one that Black Classic Press published by Walter Mosley. It'll come to me in a minute. But at any rate, you got to have the capacity to do that. And, and Coates was like, it was painful, but I learned. I learned a very a lot about that. Now he got his own in-house print. You know what I'm saying? So when you see Charles Jarman's book, the edited book on Andrew Billingsley, which I think is an essential book for you to have. If you're talking about HBCUs and don't have this book, you're not talking about HBCUs. You're talking about something, but it ain't HBCUs. Or when you see this book, which uh, just came out. Oh, no. Come on now. Yes, here we go. This book, which just came out, I'm going to talk about in a minute. Sometimes farm girls become revolutionaries. Notes on black power, politics, depression, and the FBI. That is Florence Tate, my homie, West Tennessee. She's from. I'm from Middle Tennessee. This is Greg Tate's mother. This is Jerry Tate's, Augusto's mother. This is Brian Tate's mother. She uh, in fact, went back and forth. She made transition in the year 2000. This sister right here, Jake Ann Jones, helped her and completed the book. The book just came out this year. Y'all got to get this book. We're going to talk about Greg Tate in a minute. That's his mom. Uh, Florence Tate, Charles Tate, the parents. Dayton, Ohio is where he's from. 
And you know who knows a lot of this story because I taught him. We talked about it. Larry Crow. Again, I'm starting to look at Dayton like South Carolina. I'm like, is everybody come to Dayton at some point? But at any rate, what she talks about in this in this piece is the fact that what uh, Jake Ann Jones talks about, and you know, Florence Tate told her, when my when my memoir comes out, I want my memoir to be a black press. You understand? So, <laughs> you know, you got to understand that. Very important. Black classic press, Baltimore. I want my memoir to come out of the black press. I spent my life working for black people, struggling for black people. My my dream was not for me to be oh going uh probably going fishing, I think. And, and what's what's next actually is a was a memoir by Walter Moses. Thanks that Professor Hunter has helped me in the chat. Yeah. Uh what next? A memoir towards world peace might have been him as well. But that first one was gone fishing. Yeah, gone fishing. That was the one. That's exactly right. But this question of restating the case, every generation must restate the case. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll come to a close on this because, again, this is kind of a broad lead up to a, a larger conversation. The fact of the matter is that every generation has to remember on its own. We make transition. We become ancestors. We interact with the current generations. We definitely do. Some people think that's a way of knowing of belief. Some people think, no, that's a way of knowing a science. But either way, we interact with the current generations. Even for people who don't believe that the ancestors talk to us, every time you look in the mirror, they're talking to you. Why? Because that's your mother and father. You didn't make yourself. But at any rate, so you got their DNA, so you don't have none of their memories either. You know, this epigenetics, right? But in that process, we know, however, one thing is for sure. Institutions preserve memory. So when Florence Tate, who was with this young sister, Jake Ann Jones, who was friends with her son, Greg, who after the Tates had moved to Florida, Greg said, you need to look up my mom. And she went over there to meet her and sat and talked, fell in love with the sister, just sitting there talking. And then she said, I got to write my memoir. I'm going to help you. And she made good on her promise. After Ms. Tate made, made transition in 2014, her husband, Charles, made transition in 2018. And then but here's 2021. The book comes out. The point is that that is mouth to ear and that's fulfilling an obligation at the same time. At the same time, every generation that has to receive that momentum of memory and, and, the, and the better you, the closer it is to the thing that Zona Hurston was telling that you opened us up with, the, the thing that comes from us unfiltered, the better that momentum of memory can be. Well, when you... And I'm sure there will be a number of books written at some point about Florence Tate. And I'm virtually certain that unless it's us, which is one reason why narrative exists and Nubia exists and we have this space to join with these other independent spaces and to be part of that network of, of self-determining governance, institution building, I would think that unless it comes from those governing institutions, then the next books that come out about her will be New York University Press. Duke University Press, Howard University. Wait, is there a Howard University Press? You better sip your drink. Yeah, we're gonna have that conversation another day because see, some people think the white man ice is colder. But at any rate, <clears throat> I do. I do think that Howard just signed a deal with Columbia University Press to publish some Blacks in the Diaspora series. They haven't quite announced it as broadly as I think they wanted to because when they did announce it back in the summer. Uh, one of the reporters made the mistake of contacting me for comment. And I just said, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, <laughs> I didn't say this 
I said, this is the equivalent of what I said. You know, Ice Cube, remember No Vaseline? Now let's play Big Bank, take Little Bank. But at any rate, <laughs> I said the academic equivalent of that. And then, and, and so they never made a formal announcement like they wanted to. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm saying, didn't we have a press? In fact, that's what I said. Didn't we have a press? I thought Howard had a press at one time. I thought the whole point of that was that individuals don't be institutions. And if you ain't got no place for Tracy Sherrod to work, then she gonna carve out a maroon space over there at HarperCollins. And, and Henry Gates ain't but ain't but ain't but too happy to say, let's get this black stuff out, to let's get this sacred python out to the white, I mean, to the broad community so you can see the genius of Zoe Neale Hurston. Here's Zoe Neale Hurston literally giving y'all the middle finger, but it's being curated through a white press. Now it's got some black people working here. And so all the contradictions are playing around together and you see that we are left asking, how do we free us? And the answer to that, when you don't have an institution is, well, maybe we can get five people like that at, other, at all the publishing houses. And then they can have a, a, an association of black editors. And, and then we get, yeah, we, we've seen this before. And meanwhile, they keep counting money. <laughs> anyway. One sentence, when we get out of our own hypocrisy, mm -hmm. when we can uh, stop having a foot here and a foot there, thinking at some point the foot over there is going to find steady ground. When we can stop making sense of the senseless and just focus, narrow beam focus on the work in front of us. Come on. Unstoppable. I'm out. Un no, no, no. Unstoppable, Professor Hunter. Don't go nowhere. This is the challenge. We got to live. This is one of the things, and we're going to talk about, I want to spend some time this morning on this, brother, because this afternoon, this, this evening, wherever you are in the world, on Brother Greg Tate. And I want to say his name out because we need to keep saying his name. But I also want to say his name out as a marker in my mind because I'm getting ready to just, you know, deal with another footnote for a second and come back. If we do not have the momentum of memory, we will people say those who you know forget to pass the doom to repeat it that's not too far from different from what i'm about to say if you have no momentum of memory institutions that have the momentum of memory the way they look at it in a social structure will simply continue to curate you for their advantage and they will wait till you forget and bring in the thing that resisted them. I mean, again, I mentioned the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it doesn't bother me. I don't give any credence to that place. I know what they're doing. They're doing the same thing the Oscars are doing, and the Emmys are doing, and the Grammys are doing. They're trying to maintain their place in the social structure hierarchy by recruiting you in. And so I'm always encouraged when I see somebody, was it Drake withdrew his nominations? This, you know, I don't really follow pop. Did you see that? Yeah, it was Drake. It was Drake. What did he did he did he give a statement? I know he hadn't given a statement. He didn't give a reason. Mm. <laughs> okay, good. And then when I saw Jay-Z, who out of solidarity with DMX, remember DMX had two number one albums the same year and wasn't nominated for any uh award. So Jay-Z did not withdraw his nomination. In fact, he won that year, but he wasn't there to receive it. He said, I'm not going in solidarity with Earl. <laughs> I'm saying now, does that mean? That when I hear, you know, I saw her face as she busted in. I said, shit, it's a draft. It come on in. Nigga, what? That I'm like, yeah, no, it's poison. You're pouring poison into the ears of our children, sir. But as you said, in your own uh, massive uh, tome of work, 
of spoken work, of use of words. You know, uh, you ain't rhymed since common sense. Once you got common sense, why? Because if you was, you know, you'd be Talib Kweli if you was just saying what you want in your heart. But unlike Zorna Hurston, you're going to say what you need to say to get that money. And now you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But in the induction by Dave Chappelle, which was brilliant, of course. And here's Jay-Z, brilliant, of course. And I'm saying, okay, now I didn't watch it live. So let me go back and see, because I'm not even look. I, I mean, I saw what I'm just telling y'all because I said, well, since I'm looking, I might as well look at this. But what I came looking for, I couldn't see. There was only one person inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that I really wouldn't had any interest in seeing how they were going to be curated. And that was, of course, Gil Scott Heron. But Gil Scott Heron was not inducted live. Gil Scott Heron, who is an ancestor, um, was posthumously inducted. Again, you're trying to prop up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And when he was inducted, it was not only off camera and not live, it wasn't even included in the broadcast. And I said, the most important person that night, none of y'all are a fraction of as important to our memory keeping as Gil Scott Heron. In fact, I'm reading, uh, there's a new book on Robert Charles. Oh, man, I'll never be able to find it now because I done moved so much stuff around here. But I had it with my Robert Charles books because there's there's another book that this dude doesn't mention, which made me laugh. How they talk about this is the new book and it's the, it's the only book. And I'm like, it's the only book? When this book, this book came out this month? And I said, maybe I lost my mind. So I pulled The Battle of Robert Charles, which also came out this year. But earlier, I'm saying, well, maybe the thing went to galley before. But I'm reading... And I'm saying, nah, this was the decision made because you'd already marketed this as first. Any Robert Charles was the brother who Ida B. Wells, Ida Bell Wells writes about in uh, in um, mob rule in New Orleans. This is the brother who the police were harassing and before it was over, they had shot him up and cut him up and, and, and destroyed his body because he ended up in a shootout with the police in this in this place. They burn out the place he was in. It started with him sitting on the stoops, a stupid steps and he ended up, you know, but this guy who's writing this new book and I, the book will, the book will come to me, but if it doesn't, it's because the ancestors don't want me to give him any publicity. But the point is that he writes a final chapter where he's contrasting it with the story of Mark Essex. Do you remember Mark Essex, Professor Hunter? You may have, we were both too young maybe. To oh, read. I do not. Mark Essex was a brother, ex-military who uh, traveled to New Orleans, was working in New Orleans and finally he snapped. Mark's, Mark Essex died on the roof of a Howard Johnson's. I remember you mentioning this in a previous class. I yeah. Yes. You got to read about Mark Essex, man. But but the reason most of us even knew about Mark Essex was Gil Scott Heron when he did his inner city blues remix of Marvin Gaye. And then after he's singing, he then comes into a poem and he says, you know, you ever wonder what made Mark Essex choose to fight the inner city blues? Yeah. Essex took to the rooftop guerrilla style and watched while all the crackers went wild. Yeah, bring in the elephant gun to uh, block out the sun. Made the devil want to holler. <laughs> yeah, bring in them rounds and spread these damn blues around, black people. Make me want to holler and scream liberation. Crime is increasing. Then he goes back to Marvin Gaye. This is the genius of Mark 
of Gil Scott Heron. He said, y'all thought Mark Essence was crazy. He was not crazy. Just what America did to him. You ever, you ever wonder what made Mark Essence choose to fight to inner city blues? And so what this guy does is he ties Mark Essex in New Orleans to Robert Charles in New Orleans. And the whole book, which actually it's a brilliant piece of work in this regard. He looks at the history of the creation of policing in the United States from enslavement forward. And he uses New Orleans, which had the largest black population for years in the country as the point of entry to deal with this question of how they constructed this anti-black policing coming out of enslavement. And so it's a brilliant piece of work. It's great archival work. It's a whole lot of, I mean, so I'm, I don't want y'all to think it's not an important book. It's a very important book. But I'm saying all that to say this as backdrop. Gil Scott Heron was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it didn't even make the show. Meanwhile, Dave Chappelle talked for 10 minutes, Jay-Z talked for 10 minutes, and then you got the, the girl band with the B2s. I don't even remember who else got inducted and don't really care because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is myth-making anyway. It's all myth-making. But the point is the institutions will wait for you, for you to forget. Thank you. And as you forget, they will then come in, cherry-pick, and narrate your own memory to you, and you will lose the momentum of memory. I'm working on another project uh, in, in conjunction with some folks and it caused me to have to go back into the C-SPAN database. And so I was looking at some things, you know, C-SPAN is available to everyone. And I, and, I, and I came up on the 2007 State of the Black Union uh, meeting. Remember those meetings that Tavis Smiley used to do? Yeah, yeah uh, uh, sponsored by Wells Fargo. How about that? And others. We can start there. Right, Walmart. I think Walmart was in it at one point. Hmm. But, you know, it's where I could get to see Farrakhan and everybody on stage. Right, yeah. right. Look, look, look. I'm glad you said that. Let me just take this because we will run up against the clock. Let me show y'all. Because uh, Miss Tate was the first press secretary for uh, Marion Barry Ooh. when he left city council and ran for mayor of D.C. And then he was elected. She was his secretary, press secretary. Uh, Marion Barry then suggested to his friend Jesse Jackson that you go get Florence Tate. Florence Tate was Jesse Jackson's press secretary for his 1984 run for president. She was on the plane when they went and got Robert Goodman. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that's that, that's later on. She was in the Congress of Racial Equality. She and her husband Charles helped found a chapter in Dayton. Uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I'm going to read to y'all in a minute what Greg Tate says about his mom. I mean, this woman is she worked in the African Liberation Movement. She was at the Sixth Pan African Congress. She worked with Yanita in the Angolan Independence Movement, which she then later said was a mistake because Jonas Savimbi went complete left. It's a whole fascist thing going on. In fact, her FBI file was so thick, she told anybody who would listen, including Jake Ann Jones. And when I was testing with Larry about this, Larry, who remembers them, he, she, he knew Charles because Mr. Tate, Charles Tate, set up the first company in this in this country to pull together black business people who wanted to get in at the ground floor of cable and try to build cable if they had completely succeeded we wouldn't be talking about bob johnson that's who greg tate's parents are but at any rate there's a picture in here of her because she talks about how jesse jackson couldn't get secret service and so we know who gave him who gave him protection until the secret service like, oh shit let's get some secret service protected there for this guy remember Fruit of his okay. exactly the fruit of his mom. Here's a picture of Jesse at a press conference. Here is Miss Tate. Here is Walter Fontroy. And if you didn't know, you wouldn't know who you're seeing because you're going to see part of his face behind Walter Fontroy. Is Louis Farrakhan? Because <laughs> the nation is providing. 
the secret service what the secret service has said was well, he a serious candidate wait a minute is that the fruit of islam hey, hey we need a secret service detail <laughs> because Farrakhan, when i went to see him when he came uh to uh when jesse came to nashville we were undergrad that year it was uh it was the fruit because he hadn't gotten anybody but, but but she tells all those stories and hearing more but the reason i raised that is because you would see Farrakhan at these state of the black unions because kevin smiley created some space to operate so i'm looking at the one from 2007 they were in jamestown uh they were talking about the 400th anniversary of the landing of the europeans in jamestown virginia 1607. in fact it has something called the jamestown project uh, which i guess would predate the 1619 project by 12 years although thematically it's pretty much the same Anyway, point is this. They were in Jamestown to talk about us too, right? But also talk about what we should do. And so I was watching some of the footage, because now since I'm over here, and I watched Chuck D say something. A 13-year-old boy, a 13-year-old boy had a, a, a question from the audience and asked, uh, what's my man? Uh, Tom Joyner. Shout out to Tuskegee. Tom Joyner asked he gave the question to Tom Joyner. Tavis is like, do we have any questions from the audience? Tom Joyner says, I got one here. He says, 13-year-old kid says, I am tired. That's the first thing. Then they all started laughing. He said, you tired? You 13? You tired? You tired? What you tired of? You know, this young cat said, I'm tired of the N-word. When can we stop using the N-word? Charles Ogletree was the first to answer. Ogletree was like, I was nine years old first time I was called that word. And then I'm going to read you verbatim what Charles Ogletree said. I wrote it down. He said, when somebody says, um, no, no. He says, Charles Ogletree says, I promise you. He's talking to the boy. And he got the, he got the number wrong. He said 15, but what was 13? He said, I promise you that those elders like me who are here on your watch, 15-year-old, we will help to eliminate that word from the American English Dictionary and from our own vocabulary. We must do that. Then they all started clapping. That was 2007. In 2021, they're inducting people who have the N-word at the center of their whole cultural practice into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's almost as if they never had that meeting or the one that year after in New Orleans or the one the year. And their meetings don't have, don't, they move. We don't have the momentum of memory. And you're right. You hear Farrakhan, you hear Cornell West. And then Chuck D came behind him and said, let me tell you something. When somebody says, yeah, I turned that word around. I flipped it. Chuck D said, if you don't relish intelligence and study history and it continues to be a mystery, you got the audacity and nerve to think that you can dare to turn a word around. He said, that word was put on you when you got off those boats. It cannot be turned around. But if you don't relish intelligence and you don't study history and it's still a mystery to you, you think you can turn that word around. And I'm here to tell you right now that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame loves that word. That they all love that word. Why? And they love it better because we give them permission to say it. Except it's not a sacred python coming from the village, but we swear we try to turn it into one. Why? Because we say, well, anything, we just start from here. We can create anything and this is our culture. That's your culture? Really? You, you, you call your mama that? That's always my litmus test. If you say, yeah, then we just need to keep feeding you clean water until we clean you out. Because <laughs> if you can call your mama that, you know what I'm saying? And use it as an honorific, right? I said it with an A, not an R. Or here's my favorite. Uh, shout out to our dear brother, 
Kendrick Lamar. It, it means niggas. Okay, bro, you need to take a, a language class. But it's okay. We we can do that too. You know what I'm saying? Because I think if you know better, you do better. But you got to quit beating that dead horse. Of things. Chuck D said this, but guess what? Chuck D didn't say it. Why? Because now it's buried in the C-SPAN archive and we've moved on like it never happened. We talking about Wakanda. So with that <laughs> with that in mind, um, what happens when you don't have institutional formations? Well, that means that those of us who are shaped by institutions, or at least by formations that understand the importance of institution building, are left to our own devices. And we have geniuses. We have geniuses who, to use a metaphor from another book by Ayikwe Arma, 2000 Seasons, their best work can almost be like emptying spring water, fresh, clean water into the desert. In other words, you can't reclaim the desert with a trickle of water. You can't reclaim the desert with a lot of water. You need an overwhelming capacity to do that. And you haven't built the overwhelming capacity. And why are you trying to reclaim the desert in the first place? There are places you can sit and drink water and be healthy. And it's not the desert. The deserts are going to exist. And that's why even today, and I'll mention this as a footnote and keep going. You know, I read the case, the uh, decision in um, Whole Women's Health versus um, Jackson. The, the, the Texas case, because people talk about the Mississippi case, and then yesterday the Supreme Court decided the Texas case, the abortion case that says they can, uh, the, you got private deputies, in fact, I'm going to quote uh, Sonia Sotomayor um, who says you basically got bounty hunters. Um, in fact, what did she say? I'll read from her dissent. Um, Texas has threatened abortion care providers with the prospect of essentially unlimited suits for damages brought anywhere in Texas by private bounty hunters. So if y'all remember that bill, SB8, that they passed in Texas, here's the essence of the bill. If you are trying to terminate a pregnancy after six weeks, any private person in Texas can sue the persons, the people that helped you, not just the, the, the provider of abortion, the person that gave you a ride, the person that wrote down your name, the intake person, all them people can be sued unlimited times by unlimited numbers of people in Texas in any of the 200, I think it's 42, 43 jurisdictions in Texas. And why is that okay? Because the state of Texas said no public official is responsible. We can't enforce the law. Wait, so they can do that because, because the law can't be enforced? Yeah. What kind of bullshit is that? Oh, don't worry. So, of course, they went to the Supreme Court. They're going to Supreme Court. I won't go through the, the dockets from the District Court to the Court of Appeals and the expedited hearing by the Supreme Court. Yesterday, the Supreme Court decided that there would be no injunction for, and so that law can go into effect. Now, it's going to be tested on the constitutional grounds. They're setting up the overture of Roe versus Wade, of course. And this is what uh, uh, Justice McConnell, Gorsuch, you know, how quickly we forget the fact that Mary Garland is not supposed to be attorney general. He's supposed to be on the Supreme Court. But whatever you think about him or don't think about him, Gorsuch uh, wrote the opinion because they got the numbers now to run this. Clarence Thomas dissented in part because he would he would he would have just expedited everything. He he's ready to overturn everything. John Roberts, having loosed this monster, dissents in part, and John Roberts says this. The nature of the federal right infringed does not matter. I want y'all to pause on this just for a second. This is a footnote. I'm coming back to what I was talking about in a second. I'm mindful of the clock. So this isn't about abortion. Of course it's about abortion. And of course it's not about abortion. This is about 
federalism. What does the state control? What does the federal entity control? And the United States Constitution says that the federal law is the supreme law of the land. But that's only if you can enforce it, you see? So with John Roberts now, scared, because you know he's a white nationalist too, but he didn't lose to a Frankenstein, and he realizes your little country is a lot more fragile than you want to make it look like when you're sitting there looking solemn, you know, y'all mourning over Bob Dole and all this kind of thing. The nature of the federal right infringed does not matter. This is what Roberts said. It's abortion. The nature of the federal right does not matter. He goes on to say, it is the role of the Supreme Court in our constitutional system that is at stake. This is John Roberts. This is John Citizens United Roberts. This is John Shelby County versus Holder Roberts. This is John Roberts who realizes, aha, you didn't, you didn't tow it up now. You didn't tow it up now. Now people are saying, well, why do you seem so happy about this? When did it ever work for you? Hmm? The only time this thing had to stand up and salute for you was when it felt threatened from outside in the wake of a World War II, when the world is looking like, you know, we ain't trying to do business with y'all. Look at how y'all treat them non-white people over there. It's very interesting. And so my point is this. Soda Mayor comes in in dissent and she says this. In fact, let me just see if I, I think I, I might have, and I, I am mindful of the clock, but I know I had the decision up and so let me see. Yeah, let me just reach out to first. The uh, Justice Sotomayor, she says, page two of her dissent, the second paragraph, first sentence. The court should have put an end to this madness months ago before SB8 first went into effect. Then she goes on on page four and she says, this court has confronted state attempts to evade federal constitutional commands before, including schemes that forced parties to expose themselves to catastrophic liability as state court defendants in order to assert their rights. Until today, the court had proven equal to these challenges. I want y'all, now I'm going to come back about this footnote with this. Pay very close attention to what's going on. In, 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 the, in the social structure, media, and in, unfortunately too much black media as well, they're going to make this about a woman's right to choose. And it is absolutely about that. But what this really is more deeply about is the white nationalists engaged in this cold civil war are willing to destroy the federal apparatus. And the courts have lined up now with these judicial appointments to be in the best position they've been in since the 50s to let them. So, so if they break it, y'all saw the news on, Professor, you, you probably talked about it on, 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 during the week on, on, on the show. But did y'all talk about California making an announcement they want to be a sanctuary state? No, I did not talk about that. This, this, yeah, I did not. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is because whether, where, wherever any of us come down on the right to life, women's right to choose, however you want to phrase it, California has said, well, if they're going to start, if they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, you can come to California to terminate a pregnancy. We'll even take public money to help you. As a matter of fact, Tanya Tanya Pinkins, uh, our our Nubian queen, uh, yeah, we we and who's playing maybe till um, Mobley's mom in Women's yes. Movement, and we had a nice conversation about that. She made a suggestion that we play like a really nasty form of offense and not just offer you know abortions for everybody. 
like in these places. So we didn't talk about sanctuary states like California, but I was like, there's going to be a reverse great migration coming down the pike where people probably need to move to places where they're safe. But she was like, let's do, they want no abortions. Let's offer them for everybody. And let's be real. Like, I know she's being cheeky, but. You know, no, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. I, 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 but, but let's put it this way. The way she's thinking, yeah. that's the way we're going to be thinking now. Like, let's get let's get Gates and them to fund it. Let's let's have like oh, you know, that's what's going to happen. Okay? Let's get let's get uh, what's the guy Jack and and Elon Musk and let let them pour their funds into making affordable abortion. We'll have like a van that goes around these communities and people can hop on the van and get an abortion. Like she was, you know, she's an actress, so she. she can I love it. I I mean, I love it in the sense that that's what we're really talking about, though. Oh, by the way, we did see we saw you know not only did uh, Jack leave Twitter. Jack is all off into the Eastern ways of knowing now. Mm-hmm. Jack's whole thing is silence. In, the, in fact, it's the anti-Twitter. <laughs> Jack, Jack just withdrew, you know, and then the guy they put in place apparently got some real issues because he don't like y'all neither. But anyway, <laughs> so, so black Twitter, you know, y'all might have to go gather the guy who runs Twitter. We'll see if that works. But then again, we have Nubia, so. <laughs> anyway, the point is this. <laughs> yes, she's not philosophically that is exactly where we are in fact philosophically that is exactly where this country has always been i keep saying it's not a nation it's not a nation y'all it is a federal state what stitches the federal state together is consensus and we won't talk we talked about this you know last week week before we talk about all the time but the reason we keep coming back to it is that we live in this space and if we don't nurture institutions we can have some of the most brilliant analysis some of the most brilliant work uh you know, folk doing incredible stuff at the same time, we will still be vulnerable and hostage to structures that feed their institutions, replicate them, and they have now begun to curate our memories with our help, with our help. And that's where today I want to wind up speaking just a little bit about our brother, Greg Tate. This might not be a name that you know. Um, well, there'll be a lot of people who know him, but there may be a lot of people who don't. Um, Greg Tate, and he was born in 1961, made transition quickly in, uh, uh, too soon, as we would say, in New York. Do you remember the first time you heard the name Greg Tate? Or if you, what context do you know him in, did you know him in? From hip hop journalism, you know, uh, he, he, Harry Allen, you know, there, you know, there's this cadre, you know, and, I, and I was total governance structure, uh, social structure. Yeah, you know, uh, so you know, the 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 paths cross, but not directly. Okay, but but you knew him, and he, I'm sure he knew you. I mean, love him, yes, yes. And there were a lot, and, and I mean, what would you say in terms of the '80s and early '90s? If you had to talk about black journalists working in non-black spaces, were there a lot of y'all? No. I mean, <laughs> <you think> it, <laughs> it was easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> So, I mean, could you, I mean, help us understand what that was like. <laughs> you, you know, we, we talked about this off mic. I tipped into it by accident because I like music. So mm. I became the de facto hip hop and R&B writer for the Daily News because they gave me extra money to do that because the music editor just never would cover 
anything that was black and he had these CDs. That's back in the day. Those who are under the age of 30 may not know what a CD is, but he would have them piled up on his desk. And I would just go by and pick through them. And he was like, just write for us. And then they'll put you on the mailing list. So I was like, well, okay. All right. So, you know, I, I want actually won an NABJ award for the business. I was in the business department for the business of, of rap and hip hop. I did this whole seven page. Uh, um, it was amazing. Actually. I spent a lot of time on it breaking down the business from the clothing to the music, to the labels that were, you know, cause there were all these labels at this, at the time, but you know, there was a source Yeah. and, and um, I'm going to shout out my man, Ed Young. Cause that name doesn't get enough no, it uh, doesn't. recognition. Ed Young, Ed Young, Ed Young, shout out to him. Come on. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, Quincy Jones and Vibe. Right. You know, so you got Danielle Smith, then you had, you know, right. You know, the emergence of that, you know, and Torre was, you know, kind of hovering, uh, you know, but there weren't a whole lot of us writing about hip hop. And as a matter of fact, you know, I became kind of well known as the first person to do a piece on Biggie. You know, I was like the, the de facto bad boy person at a mainstream, you know, newspaper like the New York Daily News. And, uh, but I wasn't really in it. I love R&B. No, this hip hop thing, be driving around in a suburban with weed, getting contact high. I was, I was like, y'all, you know, that wasn't my jam, Dr. Carr. Why did I, I, see that? Like, why did I just see that in my mind? Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> with, I'm like why? Why am I in this car with y'all? Why I gotta, am I in this car? Yeah, yeah. That's some wild days, yo. I mean, you remember, I, so you probably crossed paths with Nelson George more than a great. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, but how did I forget Nelson George? Sorry, Nelson. No, George. no, no, because Nelson George is great. They're really like the parents yes, of the Yes, people. they are. Yes, Nelson George. Yes, I come. more about that. I mean, please help us out. Because I mean, everybody you name comes after, they were trying to write like Nelson George and Greg Tate and sounds like, like you, because y'all are in that pioneer class. There's nobody before you in this genre. But you I mean, know, so, more about that. typical bull though. I'm I'm laser beam focused on like you ain't really looking at what anybody else is doing, Dr. Carr. Right. That's, that's just how I've, I've always right. rolled. So while there was respect or what have you, I might have heard the names, I might have given a you know the sister girl nod here or there. You know, I was never part of the they, they had, there were inner circles where they would meet and have you know conversations. Yeah, Somebody like Tracy that. Sherrod, I would meet people at her Tracy Tracy Sherrod would throw parties and bring people to get like she was notorious for bringing all kind of folk together. I went to one New, New Year's Eve party. I met so many amazing people, but I never was one to gather. So you know, I'm so you grateful. All fit in the room, which reinforces the point. Right. They're they're that that few. I mean, so even even somebody like would you say who really comes on like I guess it, not the source as much as vibe and Dream Hampton, who was around and she was. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking about. But 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 the reason I'm raising all this is because, you know, by then they realized they being the social structure, this is a commodity that you can exploit. So you've got to write about it. And in fact, the role of the critic in the social structure when you talking about non-white stuff and white stuff as well, but when you talk about our stuff, which is insurgent stuff, the role is to curate what white people should be listening to or consuming and and how to consume it and connecting it to white intellectual genealogies. Go ahead, say some more. Come on now, walk us through this. You know, as talking, you know, I did one of the first pieces on the source, spent time with Dave Mays uh, in that office. I remember it like it was yesterday. And that there was something that bothered me. Like it, 
it pissed me off as I was writing this piece that these two boys from Harvard were getting this press. And, uh, you know, Ed Young was in some back office somewhere. They never uh, brought him out. I met him years later. Hey, you know, you know, I went to high school with James Bernard. We graduated from Hillsborough. Did you? James it, it, Bernard is from Nashville. We went to Hillsborough. Me, James Bernard, Tim Wise, all of us was at Hillsborough. And I'm telling you right now, last time I seen James Bernard, he came to campus, him and Tim Wise, they did this race in America thing. And it cracked me up to no end because you wasn't even nowhere near none of this stuff when we was in high school. I mean, I'm just going to stop there and say less and let you, you know, marry through this. <laughs> oh, by the way, y'all, if you tell you might help help people understand who Maze and Bernard were in this question of hip-hop journalism, because some people may not know the names. Well, we you know, Dave Mays was credited as being the founder of the Source magazine, you mm -hmm. know, um, and Bernard. It was four of them. Right. Uh, Schechter, was it Schechter? Yeah, Schechter was, was one of them. And you know, I'm I'm writing this piece, and I'm like, there's something fundamentally wrong about these white boys from Harvard doing this. And I know uh, and they were all they were they were Harvard undergraduates who have said to started the Source magazine as a sheet in their dorm room. And even I mean, even the stories of Rick Rubin. I mean, I'm just you know, as I as I you no, know, I I sit here now, as you are forcing me to think back, because. You know, maybe on purpose I have like these blank spots in my memory. Like I, yes. I forget and move on. They're not blank spots. You got it. I'm glad you're pulling it back up because this yeah. is what we need to do. Yeah, but you know, it, it, you're saying something right now. Even me sitting, uh, in in the Daily News and giving the license to do the work that I was able to do, uh, primarily because they didn't see us, as as Zora Neale mm. Hurston would say, you don't know us Negroes and you know what they awakened in me and just a few little statements and things. And even now you talking made me so defiant in, and even how I presented my content. Um, uh, that now, you know, now it's like, it's very clear what needs to happen next in this space called journalism and media and, you know, what we allow. And, and I'm glad you mentioned, you said what you said about the N word and, and the, the rock and roll hall of fame. I'm glad you did all of that. Thank you. No, no, but but you and, and listen. We, if we didn't have narrative in Nubia, we we had look. These are these are versions of conversations that we've had over and over again, every generation. But now we can do something about it. So as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, we have to have. See, Greg Tate wrote a memoir, but it's scattered over a thousand different articles. We need Karen Hunter memoir. I mean, we need. In other words, we need. This because there are people who are coming up right now looking for that free black space and they can mistake that because they see some black faces and not understand. No, these institutions have curated this because they can't stop y'all. So this is a pressure valve. This isn't an independent black space. And so we need your playbook because, I, you know, Nelson George not going to write it. Greg Tate can't write it now. But his mama, when you when I look. We can pick up the momentum. As you were talking, you mentioned Danny Schechter. This, remember this uh, hip-hop Smithsonian anthology? Yes. I've been reading yes. through the pieces, right? One person who's not in here is Greg Tate. Again, individuals Come don't read institutions. Now, they thank him in the acknowledgments. And so I went through every page looking for him. He, his fingerprints are not in here. That could be for any number of reasons. One of the things Tate said uh, near, the end of, near the end of his life was, when you're young, you're trying to write everything you know. So when you read his earliest early stuff, He's got all the references. I mean, and I'm going to read to you from his introduction to his mom, forward to his mama's uh, memoir to help you understand where he gets some of that stuff from, because he's really institutionally grown. It's one of this one of the genius things about him. But he says, as I got older, I realized I don't need to say all that. So you see him and he went into art. He's dealing with, you know, he's got he has he had his own band. He curated uh, uh, Burnt Sugar, the band he had. They had like a dozen albums. 
you know, if you've ever seen them perform, they do some very interesting stuff. The orchestra, it's a, it's a nod to Sun Ra. Uh, one of my former, you know, she was an undergrad, or we were all an undergrad. In fact, one of Tracy's good friends, uh, Regina Brooks, literary agent, um, they were in school together. Shelly uh, is one of the singers in Burnt Sugar. So they, you know, they do a lot of uh, that work. But he didn't write with the same output. One of the last pieces I remember reading of his was in the Nation magazine. It was actually an excellent summary of Afrofuturism. Now, there's a lot of stuff y'all can look up greg tate you can see him being a lot of places but anyway he's not in here and i'm wondering did he have the energy the time or did they just curate around him either way this is uh the section that starts from 1987 to 1989 start talking about that golden age hip-hop and then they have the album like here's a, a release remember uh africa stetsasonic with ola Tenji. A-F-R-I-C-A, Angola, Soweto, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Zambia, Mozambique, and Botswana. So let us speak about the month. That's Jesse Jackson at the 1984 Democratic National Convention. Who else is there? Florence Tate, press secretary. When he's up on the podium and you hear that sample at the beginning of that song where he's like, you know, this country will have real partnership with South Africa. And Jesse said, it's a moral disgrace. It's a moral disgrace. It's a moral disgrace. And then you hear that first drum you hit, Babatunde Olatunji, who, of course, released the album uh, Drums of Passion in 1960, the beginning of quote unquote world music. You had to curate whatever. Morehouse University, Michael Olatunji came over from Nigeria as a student. The rest is history. But here's how they write about AFRICA. AFRICA, Africa, recorded in 1987, was the second of two Africa-centered message songs masterminded by human rights activist Danny Schechter. The <laughs> I'm going to stop right there because I'm looking at the clock. If y'all want to read this BS, you can read it on your own. <laughs> My, to, to underscore the point you're making. You wait. And then he goes on talking about how he approached Daddy-O and said, listen to this. And he's like, oh yeah, we got to need to do something about this. He's informing them. Then, maybe three paragraphs down in it, they say something like, oh, uh, and then uh, Sonic, Daddy-O approached uh, Olatunji, who was a friend of the family. One of the most important African global musicians of the 20th century was a friend of the black people's family, but it was the white man who birthed. Get the hell out of here and take your mom and them with you. In fact, take your grandma. In fact, take all of y'all. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, just, you know what? No problem. Go with God. Ain't nobody trying to harm y'all, but we leave us alone because you don't know us Negroes. This, this is what Soren Yards is saying. Really? They didn't know? And then, oh man, there's a line in there, daddy, you know, uh, I knew a girl, her name was Lola. She lived in a country called Angola. The president's name is Dos Santos and a man named Savimbi playing him too close. <laughs> Yo, is Lola's last name for Lala? No, but my, my brother lives in Botswana. Are they in war too? Is a heel on a shoe? My man, they know apartheid like I know you. I'm saying, Danny Schechter gets credit for that? Get the hell out of here. Now, meanwhile, by then, Savimbi has flipped. You know, Savimbi was the right wing bull who ended up with, uh, what's that boy's name out of Utah? That, I think he, that, that mummy. I think he's still breathing air, but he's for all intents and purposes going over the other side. He was a senator. Mitt Romney took his place. Um, 
Oh, Orrin Hatch. Orrin Hatch, yeah, yeah. Every time he comes to the United States, meet with Reagan, meet with Orrin Hatch and them, Savimbi, and Florence Tate writes in her memoir. She's a Pan-Africanist. And if you're a Pan-Africanist like I am and like so many of us are, the farther you get away from Africa, if you're not paying very close attention, the more difficult it is to figure out how U.S. foreign policy, European foreign policy, engender black elites in Africa to work against the people. And Savimbi ends up on the wrong side. And you know what, Florence, two things, well, there are many things in her memoir. I really encourage y'all to get this book. This sister, oh my God, you really see the history of the last 50, 60 years of our struggle. But two, two things I'll just mention right quick in way of past, come back to Greg, is that she talks about, in fact, I'll, I'll mention the thing I haven't mentioned yet and come forward because it's in the title. Notes on Black Power, Politics, Depression, and the FBI. But she, she said the title she wanted to have and then they eventually decided on another title. Her husband, Charles, said he passed away four years after she did. She said, the title of this, uh, this my, my memoir should be, and this is what Larry said when I texted him. I said, hey, man, you know, he said, man, I know. And he texted the FBI's most wanted press secretary. And I said, I said Hi, Larry, that's what she, she was known for saying that because she sent for an FBI file. It was so thick that, you know, uh, Jake, Jake Ann Jones talks about when she would go see them in Florida. She kept the FBI file on a coffee table in the, in the living room in a huge binder with a laminated photograph of Kwame Ture on the front, one of her many friends, Stokely Carmichael. She and Charles went to Stokely Carmichael's marriage to Miriam McCabe. I'm going to tell you, this, this story is unbelievable that we don't know enough about her. But the point is this. it was She said so much redacted, you really couldn't tell. But I knew they would just pull up in front of the house. They would just be there. But my point is that um, she talks about being on the FBI's most wanted list. They had her surveilled the whole time. And now you wait and generations later, you got a book that's going to be the authoritative book on hip hop. It ain't none of them the authoritative book on hip hop. Again, you just read them because you need the information and or, or see what they what sources they have. And they done narrated one of the songs of the anti-apartheid movement, late part of the anti-apartheid movement in the United States by Stetson Sonic as being the invention of one white man that helped found the Source magazine because, you know, he was involved in it. It's like Billy Crystal stand up at Muhammad Ali's uh, funeral talking about him and his daddy and his daddy was an agent, knew Louis Armstrong and all that stuff. I don't blame them. We cool. I get it, bro. I get it, Billy. You want to be with us, man? As Miss Tate said, everything but the burden. That's what you want, baby. Y'all talk all y'all want. I blame us if we don't get up and walk out. Or why was I here in the first place? But but that generation that you began setting pen to paper and pressing print on the typewriter, on the computer, Greg Tate shows up in New York in the early 80s to start writing. Now, where does he come from? He comes from Dayton. His family moves to uh, to D.C. in 1969. Oh, I said there were two things I wanted to mention. One was that, uh, in terms of Miss Tate, but the second piece is, in terms of that most wanted, but the second piece was, she talks about after they, she, you know, Greg Tate was a middle child. His older sister, Jerry, uh, who now is Jerry Augusto. I know, I know Jerry. I mean, Pan-Africanist. I mean, just remarkable sister. Truly remarkable. They follow in the footsteps of their of their parents um and then his younger brother brian who wrote the, writes the afterward here but after he was born after brian was born she talks about going through clinical depression 
and how she was never really free of that. And that became a crippling thing that she, now mind you now, they moved to DC in 1969 and she's battling this while she is at the center of many of the world's Pan-African movements. I'm not talking about just involved. I'm talking about the center. She helped organize the first African Liberation Day, 1972, which took place here in DC. She's at the center of organizing ALD. Some of y'all know what that means. You know what I'm saying? And this is who Greg Tate comes from. You know, we can talk about his father as well. I'm saying, but we're going to focus on, because again, this is very important. So here's where Greg Tate writes about his mom. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but it's a very short forward, but I just want to start here. She says, this is what Brother Tate says. The movement had a life outside the home too. And sometimes it meant one or both of your parents had to leave town to attend a march on Washington, a marriage between Carmichael and Miriam McCabe, a black political convention in Gary, a Pan-African cultural festival in Nigeria. Now, mind you, if you don't know the, and this is the Greg Tate, every sentence he writes, you almost, if you don't know what you're reading, you think you're reading one thing, but the more you know, the more you realize he done named about five different cultural references in two, two sentences. But anyway, it goes on. That's Festac in Nigeria. And of course, the Gary Convention 72, the Nation Time Convention, Baraka cheered. The movement was also multidisciplinary. It defined your mother's bookshelf the Sunday morning heavy rotation of her vinyl selections and recordings of Malcolm X's speeches, the music of Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, Pete Seeger, and Otis Redding, the soundtrack of The Harder They Come, 12-inch singles by Fela Kuti. And as the years went by, there were her travels with dad throughout the Caribbean and Africa. There, were, there was wall art from Ethiopia, Haiti, Nigeria, Egypt. The movement produced T-shirts, buttons, and posters that also turned up all over the house. And because you were a prodigious reader, talking about himself, you read everything that came in the house under her movement supporting Aegis. Baldwin, Baraka, Giovanni, Sanchez, Alice Walker, and Toni Morrison. He would eventually come to know all of them. You learned that she had favorite writers outside the movement camp, too. Her great white men of literature, Updike, Cheever, LeCarre, Roth. Mom also loved Hollywood, the old, the old movies and the new, and loved to watch the Oscars. As a family, we rarely went to the drive-in and date, and he goes on. All this pop culture you see in Greg Tate's writing is coming from all this. She says, in later years, I can recall the two of us going to see Three Days of the Condor, Devil in a Brew Dress, and at my insistence, Blade Runner, though she always let me know she didn't like or understand sci-fi flicks, and Blade Runner didn't alter the opinion one whit. Now, mind you, Greg Tate is seen as one of the, the major figures in what becomes now what we call Afrofuturism, which I'm going to talk about in a second as well. He says, and while mom would sometimes tell us she thought Elijah Muhammad got it wrong when he declared the white man to be the devil, when it was really that white woman, she loved many a screen siren of old Hollywood. This is where you take you on a bender and then take you right. She said, Faye Dunaway's performances in Bonnie and Clyde, Chinatown Network, and Mommy Dearest mightily impressed her. She once described her favorite kind of film as, quote, something modern in an urban setting with a bit of violence and sex, end quote. But since Paul Newman was also on her list of favorites, I'm sure Butch Chastity and the Sundance Kid was still modernist enough for her cinematic palette. Then she goes on, he goes on. But I'm, I just want to give you a little taste of this. The point is this. She shaped his sensibility, she and his, she and his father. So when you see Greg Tate go to Howard University, uh, he went to Howard. Uh, it was at Howard University. And, you know, it's interesting. This is where I think it's very important to understand the importance of HBCUs. I think the most important thing about HBCUs is it's a lot of Black people at them. They have never translated that into an institutional thrust that resisted this oppressive, this oppressive social structure we, we're in. They've never translated that. They've never captured that momentum in a way that translated that into a systematic agenda 
for apprenticeship, for training and movement. I am not talking about the mottos. I'm not talking about the slogans. I'm not talking about the, you know, lift every voice and sing. No, I'm talking about curriculum. This is the war that Billingsley and them came this close. That's why you got to read this book this close. And then they was able to claw it back. Very important to understand. In fact, uh, Tate has a pen. Tate has a piece in here. Because uh, remember the thing that set off the student rebellion in 1989. You read Josh Meyer's book uh, that quotes my dear friend, April Silver, our friend, uh, dear friend, April uh, Silver, where Brooklyn at, right? <laughs> April, uh, you know, uh, we are worth fighting for. That's the name of the book uh, that Josh wrote, who's a professor at Howard University. Um, the whole point of the student take, one of the things in student takeover in 1989, where you see the son of Amiri Baraka, one of the people that Greg Tate apprenticed with and really admired and continue, you know, always admired Rast Baraka, now the mayor of Newark, uh, and, and April Silver and so many other people, Jam Shakti, I'm thinking about all the people uh, who actually helped the students in the Blackburn take over this year uh, at, at Howard. In 1989, the thing that triggers that movement is the Howard University uh, Board of Trustees wants to add to themselves uh, Lee Atwater. And by then, James Cheek, the same Cheek that hired Billingsley, who came in in the wake of that call for a black university, rah-rah, dashikis, African canes, sticks. Yeah, nah, now he didn't turn really right, right? And the students was like, that's it. We ain't having no more of that. And so it's interesting because Greg Tate writes a piece for The Voice in 1989, that same year, called, and this is in his first book of essays, Flyboy and the Buttermilk. Let me get those in quickly. Uh, Flyboy and the Buttermilk. This was published. These are mostly essays from the Village Voice. And I'll talk about those in a minute. It's 1992. Next book you see. This is a great little book. Midnight Lightning. Jimi Hendrix and the Black Experience. This is Greg Tate's Midnight Lightning. The thing I love about this book, among other things, is he says, I've set out to, to reclaim Jimi Hendrix. In fact, the first sentence of uh, the first uh, chapter is all roads lead to Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he does an incredible job. And I'm going to talk about some of this in a minute. But I, I was hoping I could find the, the quote here, but I won't be able to do it quickly. Because um, he's saying this is a black dude. He says, let's say he, this is on page 12. This isn't the quote I was looking for. But I'm going to read it. He says, Identifying Hendrix as a black man and a black icon is not a particularly courageous task this late in the post black power day but it will strike some as wrongheaded and perverse. Look in your conventional Black Hall of Heroes and you will not see Hendrix leaping out from the dioramas. Now, just between us postmodernists, we all know hero worship is supposed to be passe, dead like the author or the great men of history. Except I sometimes also live over in this other world called the post-soul world, that's a not Nelson George, where the credo, Black is more beautiful, lives on, even if in more commodified form today than in the 1960s. In other words, in this other world, that of the lapsed cultural nationalist term pro-black consumer, the hero continues to battle the forces of white supremacy in order to regain his throne as Earth's rightful ruler. You got a little comic book nod in there as well. But the point I'm, I want to make a point, actually that's a better quote than what I was going to read. He said, this guy's unapologetically black. And then he, he says, not a biography. This is like myth-making. In fact, one of the things he said, another writer who you probably crossed paths with, who apparently was a very nasty sort of, I only saw him in polite company, never when him, he'd be in a fist fight, uh, Stanley Crouch. I work directly with him at the Daily News. So tell us, give us, give us, give us a minute. Who was Stanley Crouch like? Because Stanley Crouch is a major influence on Greg Tate. Tell us I about. Even, I didn't even bring. I didn't even. Stanley and I used to have some amazing conversations. He was a brilliant. Oh, Crouch was brilliant. brilliant. Never was nasty to me, 
but it could yeah, be. But he knew better. He knew he could try who he couldn't try. <laughs> I, I never knew him to be nasty. So you're 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 informing me because uh yeah that it was it was always uh reverence, but now that you mention it, yeah, I'm not here for the for the games. So uh, no maybe that, that come with that energy. But yeah, no, brilliant guy. We would have actually battles because he was a columnist as well. We would have these conversations about his column, my column, and we'd go back and forth. We were there at the same time. So writing columns for the daily news. I was on the editorial board and writing a news column and then uh, an op-ed column. Uh, but Stanley, Stanley, his music, his jazz game, you know, and that's not my thing. So I would just sit at his oh, feet no and learn. No question. Legend. Legend. No question. Yeah. I'm, but, a, Stanley, I'm a Stanley Crouch fan in terms of his work. Yeah. Tell me, tell me the nasty stories though. Cause I no, I mean, <laughs> no, it's not look, but actually y'all for real. Now see, this is one of the, <laughs> this is one of the countless places, but I'm gonna pause here and make this for emphasis. I promise you, this is only like 15 seconds when I finish setting it up. This is why. One of the reasons Nubia is so important. Professor Hunter, I really think, y'all, we're getting a peek. We didn't rehearse this. We never rehearsed. We're getting a peek in your mind and experiences of things that are essentially important. Anybody who wants to be a writer, anybody who wants to talk about our people or be a cultural curator, what you're hearing from Karen Hunter right now, from Professor Hunter right now, this should be the subject of a class because these are the strains that are completely invisible. In the New York Times, which wrote an obituary on uh, Greg Tate, don't capture any of this. It's social structure obituary. So they're going to, but what they're not going to talk about is what we talking about right now. So when you come over in Nubia, I think Professor Hunter, what do you think? We we probably should maybe go into office hours one night and just kind of yeah. chop it up. We need to, we need you to walk through this stuff right here, seriously. You you know, um, it's it's. I spent most of my career sitting and extracting from other people. So the the idea that you know, I should be extracting from myself is weird, you know, so of course, of course, you know, so I, I, but I hear what you're saying. And I think it's important is that 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 institutional knowledge that experience is the only thing. And if we're not sharing it, if we're not setting codifying these stories and, and these memories and this, this history, that's right, no one else will, and then they'll do it for us. And then they'll be the heroes. And see that and that's the point. And they do. I mean, right now, I mean, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, Stephen Sondheim made transition. Godspeed. Front page news everywhere. Greg Tate makes transition. Huh? You got to go look for it. John Caramanca wrote an article. There was an obituary in the Times. Not on the front page. But it's not their obligation. It's our obligation. And I'm just going to mention one thing Stanley Crouch told Greg Tate, according to Tate. Stanley Crouch told him, Man, you're not really writing history or criticism. You're myth-making. It wasn't an insult. Tate was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Tate understood that, you know, people will people will lie to you. A social structure will lie to you when it comes to yourself, even as they are doing the same thing for themselves. So they will say to you, oh, I don't know where you're getting this idea that black people are at the center of everything. I mean, that's just a myth. Yeah, but you want me to stand up and call George Washington my dad. Have you lost your damn mind? Do you not think, do you think I'm that? In fact, I'm sorry. Don't even get mad. Why? Remember Sylvia Winter when they talking to you they not talking to human beings. <laughs> so they don't give a damn whether you understand them or not or whether you get mad as long as they got the gun and the money, they don't give a damn. So Stanley Crouch tells Greg Tate, bruh, you're brilliance. You're myth-making. But Stanley Crouch understood what that looks like. Y'all go get Stanley Crouch album. I got the companion book around here somewhere. Ain't no ambulance for no N-words tonight. 
because he was a black nationalist back in the day. Tried to play the drums. I think drums his choice. He really wasn't a musician, but he's writing. And, and you know, this is a guy who comes out of the line of Albert Murray, Ralph Ellison. I learned a lot from Stanley Crouch, reading Stanley Crouch, Notes of a Hanging Judge. Uh, his novel, not so much. Uh, Don't the Moon Look Lonesome, I remember. But then that's a whole nother story. We, we'll talk about that in Nubia. Y'all get a book or not called Thinner, Blonder, Whiter. But anyway, we'll start talking about the politics of the publishing industry. And mm -hmm. when you got a white companion or a white curator, you know, anyway, it ain't just the Baroness and Charlie Parker. But that's a story for another day. The point is this. Crouch is legit in his grounding. Now, his politics, you may or may not agree with, but you better not try him on the stuff. I mean, I just mad he made transition before volume two of, of the Charlie Parker biography. I mean, Kansas City Lightning was very interesting to me. And I'm not one who stands as an ideologue and rejects stuff out of hand because I don't agree with the person's politics. I learned a lot, just like I learned a lot from uh, from um, not just Ralph Ellison, but Albert Murray, as I mentioned. But that's a whole nother story. So he had a lot of respect for Tate. And Tate talks about that. He says, you're making myth, you're myth making. So when you hear Tate talk about Afrofuturism and later stuff, and I'm gonna walk a little bit through him in a second, I'll, I'll come to the close, but he said something last year, he was in a conversation with um, Ingrid Lafleur, who is in Johannesburg, South Africa. She's part of a project called Afrofuture Strategies. And they were having a conversation. Y'all can go find this on, uh, on YouTube. And he's talking about Afrofuturism, Greg Tate. And he says something that's very interesting because he, he starts walking through, he says, Afrofuturism is simply the latest label given to black folk trying to build community. Black collectivity is what he calls it. It was an intriguing concept to me, one that he said before. But I mean, you know, this is near the end of his life. And I was like, you know, it's interesting because it's true. And he starts going through all these Afrofuturists. And he says the first Afrofuturist, which, of course, I won't quibble about first because I'm not so much about ranking and hierarchy. Because if you start thinking about it, the way he defined it, the first Afrofuturist would be the first Africans. But I'm not going to get into that because, again, I don't have any respect for the American social structure as something I ground my identity in. I got citizenship. So I'm going to test your test on this. And it seems like y'all determined to tear citizenship up. So we'll see what happens. But he said the first one was Benjamin Banneker. Said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. He says Banneker is literally measuring time and space, charting the stars, surveying this kind of thing. He said he sent Thomas Jefferson his almanacs, and he sends him a letter that says, hey, why you got my people in slavery? He says, so that makes him, what would that make him too? The first anti-racist? So y'all talking about Ibram Kendi? <laughs> y'all go back. Benjamin Banner got smoked for Thomas Jefferson. Y'all quit acting like anything now is new. But the reason that this is curated is new is so that you can be robbed of the momentum of memory and you just basically making celebrities. So maybe it's critical race theory. Maybe it's critical celebrity theory. I don't know. You tell me. But the point is this. You, now you're going to pay for a master class to talk to somebody, tell you that black love is really about love of America. Okay, you done lost your damn mind. You can believe that if you don't have a momentum of memory or they paid you enough. You pick which one it is because what it's not is reality. But part of myth making is creating community that bonds around these common themes. And so Greg then writes, walks through Banneker. He talks about Martin Delaney and Blake. He talks about... But, all of his references are black folk, but then even the genealogy is commingled with the white ways of knowing, white cultural meaning making, white uh, uh, movement and memory, which is cool, but it shows you what happens when we don't have institutions to introduce us to the longer form of genealogy. We take what is around us. And in Greg Tate's case, he had a very rich, uh, a rich soil to come up out of with his family and his parents. And that allowed him to project in the 1980s and 90s into a world 
where there was an absolute war going on because the social structure coming out of the civil rights and black power movement, which is why we say post black power movement, that's, you know, kind of chic to say back in the day. By post black power movement, what they're saying is that those conferences and conventions that Ms. Tate was going to, Mr. and Ms. Tate was going to, that Florence and Charles Tate were going to in Africa, in the United States, in the Caribbean, traveling the world while they're being surveilled by the FBI, CIA, all them places. They were being convened with a goal of creating autonomous black spaces that linked up and empower black people. And the social structure can't allow that to stand. Now, if you want to write about it, talk about it, make movies about it, we will, Netflix, we will, Paramount, we will, Marvel Comics, we will curate you, Harvard Comics, we will curate you and allow you to do that as long as the money come to us at the end of the day and you don't run off the plantation. You do know it's a plantation, right? But now you have a nice cabin. It's got a little window box with plants in the front. You know, you get two days off a week. It's a weekend. It's very nice. Now, I do want you to continue and go out there and get some of your field Negro friends to come up and sing some of them old songs. Because if they do it right and they don't connect to nothing that's going to empower you, we'll wait 20 minutes and enshrine them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But the point is that what you can't be allowed to do is create no institutions. Because even when you accidentally come together, which Greg Tate, by the way, again, by the time Cheek gets to the end of his presidency, Billingsley's gone. He's running Morgan State University. Then, you know, he leaves there, goes to some other places. St this guy's still swinging with both fists in his mid-90s. Like 94, 95, I think 95 is next birthday. But, Lord, that's the time. Okay, no, that's going to be clear. But, because I'm looking at the clock too. So, and I know we live, so I'm trying to, trying to wind this to a close, but I want to bring up some, some points. Again, in that same 1989, these students say, what the students in 68 said at Howard, not just at Howard, but at, at black colleges generally, some of them, this got to be a black university. And y'all tried to put this white man on? Greg Tate writes for the Village Voice a piece called The GOP Throws a Mammy Jammy. Black Stars Bowl Over Bush at Blues Summit. This is in the, new, this is in the, the Village Voice. This is 1989. He says, it was a groggy morning in the new year when Mother Tate rang from D.C., to inform her son, the music critic, that the Republicans were putting on a rhythm and blues blowout for the inaugural. The elect were all black music standard bearers, if not outright royalty. Willie Dixon, Albert Collins, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, Billy Preston, Sam Moore, Coco Taylor, Dr. John, William Bell, Eddie Floyd, Chuck, Jackson, Ron Wood, a true daughter of Memphis. That's by the way, that's where I say she's from. A little, little town outside of Memphis, but we ain't gonna quibble. Uh, the reason she knew Marion Barry, Marion Barry graduated from the same school she graduated from. Shout out Lemoyne Owen, small HBCU in Memphis. And of course, Marion Barry then it goes on to become the chair of SNCC. Eventually, you know, ends up in D.C. after many years. Actually, he was working on a Ph.D. at the University of Tennessee in chemistry. People sleep on Marion Barry, but I ain't gonna argue with nobody. You know, y'all go on and believe what your master say. All right, he goes on, he says, a true daughter of Memphis, Mother Tate was ecstatic and advised her son to come cover the ma this mammy jammy. I wasn't so ready to jump. And he goes on to talk about why he don't really want to come now. Because remember, Greg Tate, went to Howard. And it's interesting, and I'm coming back to this in a second, but I want to read one other thing. She said, my mother, has, my mother has voted Republican in the last three presidential elections. She is not, however, a black Republican. Remember, she's in D.C. So ain't D.C. you never going to carry, be carried by Republicans. Well, I mean, I never say never. A breed she respects as little as the party's hierarchy does. She's a race woman. 
Her activist resume speaks for itself. Veteran foot soldier with CORE during the Civil Rights Movement. Supporter of SNCC and the Black Panther Party when Black Power was involved. Press manager for the first Marion Barry mayoral campaign and administration. National press secretary for Jesse Jackson during his 84 bid for the presidency. She loves public enemy as much as anybody you know. Her personal favorite, she watched Channel Zero. <laughs> I think about that after uh, uh, Flavor Flav became a reality TV star on Flavor of Love. I said, like, y'all remember the first public enemy album? I don't think she can handle it. She go channel to channel, cold looking for that hero. She watched Channel Zero. <laughs> He's literally critique and Flavor Flav opens that cut by saying, you blind, baby. You blind. And then you turn up being the exact thing y'all was critiquing. Y'all know individuals don't beat institutions? Greg Tate wrote about in the Village Voice the same time that Armand White was writing at the, at the City Sun in Brooklyn about what happened when they released Fear of a Black Planet after what happened with Professor Griff and Welcome to the Terror Dome. That's a whole nother thing. All right, so he goes on. She says, he, he says about his mom, in each election, her ballot was cast not for the reactionary, but against the Democratic Party, except in 1980 when she was protesting, quote, the general feebleness of the Carter administration, end quote. Mondale's freezing out of Jesse at the 84 convention cost him her swing vote in that slaughter. Need I spell out what effect Dukakis's dissing of Jesse and the entire African-American body politic did to turn her stomach? Call her an egotist, but Mother Tate is on a mission to put the Democratic Party on notice that her black vote can't be held hostage to hysteria over the GOP boogeyman. She believes African-Americans should, quote, be like the Jews and have somebody on all side of every political question, end quote. This, of course, Greg Tate writes, assumes that all Jews are moles and that blacks of whatever ideological persuasion can put a black agenda first. But if you think I'm opening that can of worms here, homeboy, it ain't happening. I'm saying, my point is, Greg Tate, Sometimes reading Greg Tate, and I remember seeing a debate that he had with Greg Thomas up at uh, at Harvard's Hip Hop Archives. Again, you can't make, what is it? Wait a minute, Professor Hunter, do you have that right there in front of you, that quote you read from Zora Neale Hurston? Of course. Could you read that first couple of lines again? I'm going to sit right here on this porch chair and prophesy, excuse me. And yeah, prophesied that these are the last days of the know-nothing writers on Negro subjects. Both, ed both editors and readers are clamoring for something that makes their side meat taste, taste like ham for to tell the truth. Negro reality is a hundred times more imaginative and entertaining than anything that has ever been hatched up over a typewriter. Thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. So Greg Thomas, thank you, Greg Tate at Harvard debating about Amir Baraka versus Ralph Ellison. What does Zona Hurston say? It's more entertaining than anything. In other words, as long as you aren't threatening the social structure, there it is. You don't know us Negroes, but guess what? They figured out we could we could know y'all. And still stay in charge. And so now people talk about authenticity. Why is authenticity the coin of the realm when everything you're doing is emptying into those structures? So it's very interesting. Anyway, I said it. So, so I just I just mentioned this because this is the same, you know, at that party they had. This was the one where Lee Atwater, who produced that, was playing the guitar. These Howard students wasn't having it. <laughs> you gonna put this one on the board no now why well, i said all this backdrop earlier that decade greg tate had been at howard 
But it wasn't just Greg Tate. It was his friend uh, out of Mississippi, Arthur Jaffa. I'm going to try to pull this. This is a huge book. I went all the way to New York to get this yeah. book. Yeah, to use your stomach muscles for that one. Yeah, this is, this is, this is, I think this book now is listed at a thousand or a couple thousand dollars. But, you know, some places, you know, here's the thing. If you hunting, you can usually find stuff, but you can't just tell everybody where you get everything. So this is actually a signed copy. But um, Greg Tate. Wait, y'all, that was a book flex? Don't we just need to sit in that for a moment? Always, always. but yeah, just letting y'all know. Just letting y'all know. But anyway, this Greg Tate and Arthur Jaffa often told the story about sitting, uh, standing up in front of Founders Library at Howard University and starting a conversation. He actually, the piece that Greg Tate wrote in here is called Cecil Taylor's Monster Movie. He talks about Cecil Taylor, and a lot of people would dismiss Cecil Taylor as not being black like Hendrix, but he he writes a piece in the voice about that. But that's sort of another day. I'm getting nine o'clock. The um. The thing that fascinates me, though, about that is, and both these guys, by the way, Jaffa is a direct student of Holly Garima. When you see his work, you look at, I mean, constantly, Holly Garima, Jaffa, Ernst Dixon, all those guys. Um, Tate sat in on Holly's classes, and Holly knew him. He said, I go to New York, you know, we, we talk. Jaffa, Tate, uh, there was another uh, brother there. There's a number of brothers there, but uh, Richard and, and sisters, Richard Powell, Richard Powell, Richard Powell, who's a professor at Duke, does a lot of work in art. I mean, art chief art historian, critic, culture keeper. Jaffa was getting a master's of fine, I'm sorry, uh, Powell was getting a master's of fine art at Howard at the time. In fact, uh, there is a, a couple of pieces I'll mention here very quickly. In fact, I won't even take the time to go into them uh, to find the, let me see if I can go into the table of contents. I remember them from looking at them. Um, Greg Tate eventually starts writing about, yeah, look at page 56 King Sonny Ade, right? He's gonna cover Sonny Ade. So he goes on the road with King Sonny Ade. You're talking about these Nigerian uh, writers and uh, Nigerian musicians, Juju Music. And he says that they do a date in New Haven at Yale. And while they're there, I'll read it here in New Haven, an old friend from Howard U, Rick Powell, introduces me to Robert Ferris. Thompson. Now you're going to see him. Uh, did I pull my? No, I don't think I did. There's a book called Neo Hoodoo where Greg Tate has a piece in there where he's uh, Robert Ferris Thompson has a piece or uh, Robert Ferris Thompson was one of the editors and he's writing about Robert Ferris Thompson. He's got, he's got another piece in here that he wrote for the Village Voice on Robert Ferris Thompson called uh, Guerrilla Scholar on the Loose. Robert Ferris Thompson gets down. But when you're reading Greg Tate, you're reading somebody who's absorbing Thompson too. Robert Ferris Thompson just made transition. He wrote Flash of the Spirit. In fact, he says, introduces me to Robert Ferris Thompson who proceeds to pour a libation of beer on the floor of the club. This old white guy is all right, I say to myself. Why? You've seen libations before. You've been around Africans and Pan-Africanists, including your mother and father. So you know what it means to uh, go to a Kwanzaa, to have a, uh, you know, to, to organize, to see organizing, to see African rituals. Dayton for years had his cultural fest. It's very important. He says, author of Black Gods and Kings and African Art in Motion, Thompson is responsible for two extraordinary works of scholarship on the cultural systems governing African aesthetics. And he has a lot more since then. The last one I think he did, an anthology of his piece, Birth of the Cool. I won't be able, I won't pick it up over there. Uh, but in a number of different books. Tate goes on and says, before racing back to the bus, I hang outside his classroom at Yale, catching wild snatches of the sermon the day after the New Haven gig. This is what Thompson says while he's in there and Greg Tate's listening. Quote, a lot of people there last night thought they were seeing entertainment. Only you can tell by the patrilineal scars on this man's face that he is no mere entertainer, but the progeny of kings. 
Because if you are Yoruba, just like if you are Anglo-Saxon or if you are Jewish, you know who you are and you know where you're coming from, end quote. So now you see, and you're going to see Robert Ferris Thompson play a lot. In fact, there's a guy that Robert Ferris Thompson did a lot of work on and, and who was very imp, highly influenced by Flash of the Spirit that we all know. Oh, yeah, here we go. This is the one I was thinking about. Neo Hoodoo. Tate's got a piece in here, Art for Forgotten Faith. In fact, let me just go to it very quickly. Hoodoo is what we do. It's a very interesting piece. This is a piece with bottle trees and what this in some ways is Greg Tate's definition of what it means to be African. He says, Greg Tate, who do is what we do in the volume Neo Hoodoo, Art for a Forgotten Faith. Robert Fritz Thompson, one of the editors. Tate says, Hoodoo is what we do. That old black magic made anew. By who? By you, fool, the master of that Jess Grew, the American Negro in, in parens. Oh, Jess Grew is spelled G-E-S-G-R-E-W. That is a nod to another of the influences, the great Ishmael Reed, who still walks the earth. We'll talk about that in another day. Maybe go to Office Hours. I feel like we, need to, we should talk more about Greg Tate this week, or maybe Monday night. Yes. That New World African, that N-I-G-G-A. Hmm. Master the just grew, and this is what it is, and making something out of nothing, who willpower, who holds civilizations with that monkey rhythm and this bridge called my back. A lot of references there. won't go stop now. That name one known to declare, I ain't no African. That, no, no, that same one known to declare, I ain't no African. That same one also known to speak in tongues, keep bottle trees in the front yard, uh, scatter cracked pottery on the gravestones out back, dance the jubil, broom sweet spirits off dirt floors and toss salt over his shoulders, pour thunderbird libations for the brothers who ain't here, consult dream books for divination, and not only see dead people, but openly conversate with them on the regular. In other words, he's saying, y'all never stop being African, and that's cool. Oh, the, the, the brother, by the way, that was deeply influenced by Robert Ferris Thompson, this white scholar out of West Texas who spent his life studying Africana, that would be a young brother by the name of Jean-Michel Basquiat. This is the last major piece that, uh, that I think that, that I got a lot of the art catalogs and things I didn't go around here and try to pick out and some stuff's in storage called Writing for the Future, Basquiat and the Hip Hop Generation. Uh, Tate wrote a piece in that. This just came out last year. Uh, late last year, actually called Hip Hop's Afro-Futuristic Afro Hive Mind, where he defines this question of the hive mind very simply as the uh, iconoclastic generational hive mind, self-empowering its muses by digging deeper into its urban bush bejeweled interiors and casting forth works that defiantly represented its own function afro-diasporic imaginaries and gully New York street experiences. Now, why am I raising all this? I'm going to put all this together now. I'll pull it out together. By the way, after this volume where he covers the first piece he writes in New York for The Voice, 1981, um, is actually uh, James Blood Ulmer. He's talking about Cecil Taylor, George Clinton, he interviews, Wynton Marcellus. I mean, you name it, everybody. Miles Davis, Santana. He's critical of people even as he's bringing them up. The second volume, of the volume after Midnight Lightning and Jimi Hendrix, is this volume Flyboy 2? This is his last major piece, the Greg Tate Reader. That's where you want to get these two right here. This is a great deal of Greg Tate's writing that you can read in one place. And I already mentioned the one that he named for what his mama used to say. This is the anthology, Everything But the Burden. Those are the four books Greg Tate has. So um, he says this of Afrofuturism. I'm going to kind of wind all this together now and kind of make it a little bit personal in terms of, uh, of Greg Tate. When he was talking about Afrofuturism in this conversation I was seeing with his sister who's in Johannesburg, a black woman, 
he says, when you study the 19th century, you study black folk in the 19th century, he said, you get the feeling in terms, we talk about Afrofuturism, just the latest label for us looking for community to, to convene community. He says, you study the 19th century, you get the feeling that we just bad knockoffs with better media. I agree with that. Because this is what happened after Greg Tate. I think about my friend Mark Anthony Neal, who was interviewed by my other friend, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, um, the other night on Black News Channel. Uh, Mark asked me on to talk about, I forget what it was, uh, Marcus Garvey. You know, shout out to Dr. Julius Garvey. Dr. Garvey still wants a pardon for his dad. Uh, his brother made transition a few months ago, uh, Marcus Garvey uh, Jr., his oldest one and oldest son, and he and Amy Jakes Garvey. And, you know, Mark asked me, well, what do you think about that? I mean, just should the government part, I mean, do you do you support that? I mean, do, should, why should we care? Because we know who they thought he was, and we shouldn't care what they said. And I said, it's very simple for me. His son wanted it, so I want it. Now, I don't give a damn. But I don't care. In fact, I, uh, what's the brother's name who edits the Martin Luther King papers? He was in SNCC. Uh, he wrote the book In Struggle and The River of No Return. Oh, that's Cleve Sellers wrote The River of No Return. They'll come to me in a minute. Um, mm, he said, I want, I want my arrest record to stay. That's a badge of honor. So uh, you know why I can't think of his name? Because he shares a name with the brother I'm about to name. But anyway, the point is that you know, Greg Tate said, you know, you study 19th century and I get the feeling sometimes that, you know, we're just bad knockoffs with better media. I think there's some truth to that, because if you're not coming out of institutional formations, you have a Greg Tate emerge who has who never leads the idea of organizing black people. Black rock coalition, you know, but you're also in a space where these white institutions are going to begin to curate blackness. And you think maybe I can bring this off and you can, but the people coming after you don't have the institutional ties. So even when you come to Howard and you meet Arthur Jaffer and y'all strike it off and like what they say was an eight hour conversation that day. And they then thickest these to the day. I mean, Arthur Jaffer is, you know, I was talking to Holly the other day. I mean, rightfully, I'm sure beyond the family, you know, the man has lost his best friend. One of, if not his best friend. And they've known each other since they were, you know, as a, uh, as Ellen the trailer says that she and Tony Morrison, when they were on the campus of Howard University, we were girls together. They were boys together. Now, who else is in that milieu coming just a little bit after them? Tanasi Coates, you know, Richard Powell is there, you know, who introduces uh, 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 um, Tate to the work of Robert Frears Thompson. Tate, who then is introduced to that at Yale, Powell introduced him. He's outside ear hustling, hearing Robert Frears Thompson, and he ends. By the way, I want to make this point. He ends that. Uh, that 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 joint to um, to New Haven after having heard Robert Ferris Thompson. Mm, I took the uh, page fifty six. I said, wasn't it? Yep, King Sunny. I did. Let me just read this because I don't want to misquote Tate. He says at the very end, he's getting ready. They're getting ready to leave. King Sunny. I day, Right? These Nigerians. These Yoruba men. He says when I walk into the Howard Johnsons and sit down to break bread with Sammy and Sunny while they speak in Yoruba tongue. I don't know what the F they're talking about, but feel very much at home with myself and then some. That's 1983. That's very profound. It also shows you the limitations of trying to create your culture from scratch based on your trauma. You should learn Europe then. In other words, see, the momentum of memory has not displaced Latin. 
On to law school, you got to learn rest epsiloquity. You got in order if you don't know no Latin, you can't read the 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 the, uh, the Texas abortion case from the Supreme Court because they're gonna drop in certain phrases, even as they're myth making. When you read Gorsuch's opinion, he's not only he goes back and quotes Marbury versus Madison. Do you know what the American legal system is based on? It's based on their ancestors in the form of the justices who have ruled. And if they're going to argue with their ancestors, they first got to cite their ancestors, which is why Sotomayor is like, I can't believe y'all cited these cases, particularly the case that, that, that really grapples with the idea of when a federal court can intervene at a state level. And that, that is a case that was 1903, ex parte young. Story for another day. Some of y'all law students go look that up. But the, he also quotes the papers of John Marshall. You're evoking your ancestors. This is what the law is. But if you're going to say, as a brilliant brother coming out of a thing, conjuring this identity and understanding the importance of culture, and then you kind of just do a free range association, kind of sometimes stream of consciousness combination of facts, and anybody who doesn't know can use any of your essays as a, almost like a, a dictionary. You got to go look up all these things, and you too can begin to acquire these things. But then you're sitting with some cats from the continent who speak in Europe, and you say, oh, understand what they're saying but i feel at home well that's a good feeling now build on that ask him to start translating because i'm gonna tell you who did acquire the language skills the cat who you was ear hustling talking uh as he was lecturing in his classroom and you came to know that about robert Ferris thompson and this is where i'm going to end with this because there's everything else to say and i think we'll continue on monday i want to talk some more about this brother but this is where i think i, I want to end with this i went to New York to live just for a short time, 1989. I told y'all before my second year of law school. And I worked at the Mississippi Legal Defense Fund. And I spent every waking hour that I wasn't there or in Jersey City where I was staying. In Harlem, in the village. And I started absorbing Greg Tate and Stanley Crouch but I wasn't just reading the village voice. Do you remember the city sun? Of course, I remember the city sun. And my, my friend Tony used to be the editor of it. And one of the first pieces ever written about me was in the city sun. I have it framed and it was on my daddy's wall for in, until he left this earth. Uh, yeah, city sun. I love, yeah. I love it. Andrew Cooper. I mean, there's a book yeah. on Cooper, actually. I think it's called the city sun, S-O-N. But I got it over there somewhere. But the sun... I was reading Crouch but Tate at this at the voice, Armand White at the Sun. I love Armand White to this day, like Stanley Crouch. I ain't got to agree with him half the time. I'm wincing, but the and, thing and I like know that Stanley Crouch uh, was uh, doing strange things for change. Knowing no know, know that in the space that we were in, <laughs> that you you get you get promoted, you get that column. I was I was one of the rare people, but even you know some of my earlier columns, you would read them and think. That I was, you know, I, you know, I got hemmed up by uh, Adley Sanders. Sanders. Oh, did yeah. you? She hemmed me up. Yeah. You oh, know, yeah, because... look, say less. We got to put that yeah. for office hours. I okay. can't hear that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Regent yeah. Sanders, uh, Re, uh, Regent Sanford is still around. Sanford. She's feeling yeah. that. Yes, yes, yes. She, she hemmed me the hell up. Um, but, but you know, you get you're you're parroting the paper that is paying your salary. Right. Right. I agree. And it's so interesting because. Yeah, being a contrarian pays, particularly if you are being, you can be used against other black people. Yes, especially then. No question. And so again, I mean, Whitlock's ass. In fact, let me just let me just read Skip Gates, who writes the forward to Flyboy and the Bladder Milk. 
right? This is what Henry Louis Gates says. He says, the first task of the culture critic is to create a voice and through the voice of persona. It hardly matters who's behind it. Greg Tate could be a balding, middle-aged white guy with a pot belly and unlit briar clenched between yellow, between yellow teeth, occasionally spilling crumbs of a cherry-flavored Cavendish mixture into his Underwood manual. He isn't, but he could be for all that it mattered. That's because, see, that's what first clued Henry Louis Gates' poem, Poison in the Ears of Black People, or translating to white people. Of course it matters, but Gates got to just, Gates don't come out of this Florence Tate tradition. He has tried to curate it over the years, and I give him credit because he's smart. Gates in 1992 attacks John Henry Clark and them on the, on the, on the op-ed page of the New York Times, black demagogues and pseudo-scholars. Dr. Clark writes the Times to counter. They never published what he did, so to find what John Clark published, you got to go get his books that he published with black presses. You understand? After World Press and them, you got, or independently published. In other words, you won't see, because see, Gates, they're curating. Can you be trusted? Can you be trusted? Gates is sent there because the movement, y'all talking about critical race theory? I was there. I remember reading Kim Crenshaw's major article when I was sitting at the Legal Defense Fund in 1989, reading the Law Review article. So I remember that. The major intellectual thrust that created a problem in this country was not critical race theory. It was the African-centered movement. Because this is also the period of the African-centered schools movement. I suspect that part of it might be, uh, we'll, I'm gonna, we're going to find it in office hours. Regent, San, Regent Sanford was on the Board of Education for People of African Ancestry. This was during the, the highlight of the African-centered schools. This is the work that, um, in some ways, he does very good work, but then misinterprets, uh, or, well, I don't say misinterprets, because, again, he's doing strange things for some change. Another Howard person, graduate, he graduated. Um, we are an African people, John Rickford writes about this, but he don't understand. But I understand why he don't understand or doesn't want to understand because, you know, if you're going to fight these people, you got to fight these people. You can't write about fighting them and get, and get credit for fighting them. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff they put you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for. But at any rate, the point is that this was the intellectual thrust that they were terrified of. Greg Tate comes out of that thrust and he's trying to reconcile this. He gets Gates to write the four because Gates is on a rising star. He could be trusted. He's out here. I'll murder these Negroes for you. How much? I got you. I got you. And then, of course, what we've seen is since them days, Gates has reinvented himself several times. If y'all go back and look now at the trajectory of uh, Henry Louis Gates, he went from that to wait. They, they really love Africa. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Give me some money. I'll make wonders of the African world. I'll make blacks in Latin America. I'll make African-Americans, many rivers to cross. I'll make one about the black church. He even turned around a couple of years ago and they republished with a white press because this man self-published his own work. Joel Augustus Rogers out of Jamaica, J.A. Rogers. He republished his hundred facts about the Negro. I'm like, oh, man, this is real. Oh, so now you black as hell, huh? Skip, in the days of Bill Gates is gone. No, they're not gone. You're still trying to, bruh, here's the beautiful thing about it. What? Ain't, ain't nobody listening to you. But this is what he says about Tate, he says this. He says that's because Greg Tate has a voice, more than one actually. Like writers as varied as Hunter S. Thompson, T.R. with Tomsky, Tom Robbins, or Richard Farina. You see the genealogy, you know black people mention. Tate has a deceptively loose-limbed style. It's an illusion, of course. Tate manipulates the tonalities of an urban vernacular, true enough, but his writing is also informed by, for example, contemporary cultural theory. And the result of Tate's experiments in recombatant syntax, a sort of teenage mutant b-boy cadence, is something all his own. But here's where I want to go. Punchline. And I'll close this book. Part of what's so valuable about Tate's role as a cultural critic is the way he negotiates the contradictions that underlie Black American culture. The traditional failing in Black criticism has been to accept a dichotomy between a bland universalism and a parochial Black nationalism, 
and then to side with one or the other. What Tate understands is that culture, Afro-American culture in particular, is never a matter of either or. He can both celebrate the energizing pull of cultural nationalism and register its limitations, moral and intellectual. My friend, this is why we have to have a social structure and a governance structure. You see what Skip Gates is trying to do? Oh, hold on, Chief. Side are you on, boy? Which side are you on? Why? Because everybody knows the human culture has limitations and flaws. But what you just did is try to discredit any notion of black self-determination as having inherent flaws while never giving that same critique to that white culture that is giving you your check. Until, of course, they bust up at your crib and accuse you of breaking in your own house, at which point you engage in a stream of invectives like you from the hood somewhere. And everybody listening is like, he finally lost his mind. But you didn't lose your mind. You knew, to quote Ralph Ellison, that they kept you running. But anyway, that's a whole nother story for another day. So Greg Tate, when I came to New York, I was so moved by all these cats. That I ended up, when I went back to Columbus, Ohio that summer, the end of that summer, I subscribed to all those papers. So I don't know who else in Columbus, Ohio was getting, in addition to the New York Times, whatever, the Village Voice, the City Sun, the Amsterdam News. Now, of course, then was the days when you get it a week after it was published, but it didn't matter. Reading uh, Clinton Cox in the City Sun, reading Armand White and the City Sun, who ain't never liked Spike Lee, which is hilarious because even Spike, this just came out. This is actually a gorgeous book. Spike. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Spike Lee said, I ain't gonna let y'all. He done partnered with, Who's I mean, the photographs alone. His brother took the photographs. Oh, wow. Oh, no. Every page is Who's like the publisher? This. Is that Tashin? What is it? It looks like a Tashin book, right? But it's not. It's, um, oh, hold on. Hold on. Tashin couldn't, yeah, they couldn't they couldn't do that. Now Tashin, I, it's not Tashin. Oh, doggone it. Give me a second. Uh I gotta flip a few pages in. I mean, he does. I mean, all these pictures, most of these pictures, his brother. Beautiful. Sinke. Yes. I mean, oh, it is incredibly beautiful. Here it is. That's yeah. how that gets that's how you do that. And Spike Chronicle. has always been that dude. Who is it? Chronicle Chroma, C-H-R-O-M-A, Chronicle. And when I tell you, and he goes movie, by, but you know what's interesting to me? Up until Malcolm X, every movie he did, there's Crooklyn. You see the photographs, mm -hmm. right? His, his brother and sister wrote the, oh, when I tell you some of these photographs, oh, wait, I'm going to show y'all a picture of his cinematographer for all of his movies up until Malcolm X. There they are in South Africa. See that brother with the X shirt on, sitting in the chair? That's Ernest Dickerson sitting next to Spike Lee. That's the guy. Every every movie you see, Mo Better Blue, you see how those colors, you see the lighting of black people, you see photographs like this, Malcolm, the lighting, all that. You see the Nation of Islam, all these all these, all these photographs, the lighting there, that's Ernest Dickerson. You know who Ernest Dickerson is? Ernest Dickerson is the student of Holly Garima, like Arthur Jaffer, Greg Tate in conversation with him. This happens at a black, Richard Powell in conversation. This is what happens at a black school. And to understand that, that means that the HBCU is not in the curriculum. It is, however, in the, uh, y'all remember this, right? School days. <laughs> this is all, when you when y'all watch those movies, you're looking at black filmmakers who were trained by black people. Before Spike Lee goes to NYU, he's at Morehouse. Samuel Jackson and them down there. Before Richie Powell ends up, 
he at Howard, he's at Morehouse. Two HBCUs. That's where he runs into Greg Tate and them. Arthur J for them. Tate, Jafer, Coates. None of these guys have a degree from Howard. They're all, they all attended Howard, but as Tanahasi writes in, 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 uh, in Between the World and Me, the Mecca is where they're going. Why? We're here being in conversation with each other. And that's that that's an important thing. The question becomes, can we build institutions where it doesn't just come because they're in conversation with each other, it comes because it's in the curriculum and it's in everything from the administrative structure to the faculty. The answer to that in America right now is no, we cannot. So when Greg Tate wants to eat, he's going to do stuff with black people everywhere he can. But if I'm going to be able to make the rent, I'm, I might have to get a job one of these other places. And guess what? As they're paying me, they're also sinking their fangs into me and drinking out the blood of the ways of knowing, the movement and memory, the cultural meaning making of us. And given their science and technology, we end up being, to quote Greg Tate, bad imitations with better media. So everybody comes after him who has been writing and who attributes all this stuff we were trying to write. I, I read my friend Jelani Cobb and Jelani in writing about Greg Tate says we were all trying to imitate him. Martin Neal says the same thing. They all say the same thing, trying to imitate him, trying to imitate him. But part of that means that you are faced with the same challenge he faced, except we're not in the 80s and 90s no more. We are now near the end of the U.S. nation. We're closer to the end of the U.S. nation state than we were then. Why? Because they have continued their assault on the concept of a federal policy that could protect black life when it was never designed to do that and was never committed to do that. And everybody's kind of standing aside and looking. So now they figured out a way to get everything they need out of you while they still kill you. And in fact, they'll kill you and wait on you to make a beautiful performance piece of about it and put it in on the Super Bowl halftime show. What the hell? So I, I, I think we should think about the fact that while the social structure will note the passing of Greg Tate and has in a minor way and the governance structure, we must I recognize this internal shift and how maroon culture must inform institution building. It's not enough to just have a bunch of smart black people talking to each other. And that ways of knowing tell us that institutions recede with time and that they die and our ways of knowing die. Like when he talks about hoodoo, Michael Gomez says hoodoo in some ways is like voodoo or voodoo without the playbook. So yeah, we don't step on cracks. Yeah, we got bottle trees. Yeah, we pour out a little liquor. But why do you do that? I'm just recognizing the brothers down here. Okay, so how do that free us? I know that frees your soul, your spirit, and you end up with black joy and Afrofuturism and all that's beautiful. But how actually does that stop one black person from not being killed by the police? Or it doesn't. But you might get a contract to write a book about it and publish it at a university press. You might even get an art exhibition where you can talk about dreams or colder than death or this kind of thing. And then you find yourself in an existential crisis. That's one reason why reading Arthur Jaffer's work and looking at his films and looking at his curations is fascinating because you end up trying to fight your way out of something that you inadvertently have trapped yourself in. We got to pour some clean glasses of water and build some institutions. And that process doesn't just involve the creation of smart black people. It means jailbreaking this whole system so that a Greg Tate isn't born, next Greg Tate is not born into a world where she or he has to go ply their wares in these white spaces and build out maroon spaces on the periphery. And then the next generation stands aside and says, that was brilliant. And now what do we do?
I don't know. Can you get that academic appointment? Can you get that job at the art museum? Can you get that job with the publisher? Well, I, I hope so. What can I, what can I come up with clever? What can I put in my box and leave my village and show it to them and say, see, I'm human. We lost again. Meanwhile, they don't care about genius. They'll make anybody a genius. You give, you, you give a little dude a camera, let him shoot a few black and white films, and you don't give a damn who we touch in his spare time. Woody Allen's a genius. Oop, I should stop there. Oh, isn't Melania Trump on a Wasn't she on a genius visa? All right. Oh, was she on a genius visa for the naked pictures? Was that? Uh, I'm just trying to say less. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, <laughs> it's fiendishly clever, isn't it? Anyway, we, we we're talking more about we're gonna talk more about Greg Tate. I wish we yeah. had so much more to say because I didn't talk about Colton Nats versus Freaky D. I, I, I man, I should say one other thing. I know it's time okay. to go, but I, let me say this one thing before we go because I went that summer I spent changed me in so many ways because I was looking for a logic. Remember, I was in law school, and language in the law is the center of the practice. It's the it's the proxy for power. What you don't figure out until you're in it is that these words only apply to people who ain't got no power. <laughs> so I'm not trying to disillusion any of y'all about the law. And I'm sure there were people who would say that's not true. And I would invite them in the newbie and we have a conversation for hours about it. But the point is this, Greg Tate gave me language in a way that I recognized because I saw some of that African, Caribbean, African-American stuff that I had begun learning in undergrad myself and was continuing to learn. I finished that law degree. I went to my master's program. I'm doing African-American studies. I'm working, and I continue to learn from the brother and think through the brother. Last time I saw him, I never, I didn't know Greg Tate for long extended conversations. Anytime I would see him, I would just, you know, how you doing, brother? Yeah, thank him for his work. Last time I saw him, in fact, was, it might've been when I came up there, uh, when, last time we, we were together in the studios. I went to, uh, Matt, I was maybe it was earlier before I came up there, over there to you, I was at Madison Square Garden, right in front of Madison Square Garden. I come out of the comic book store and Greg Tate was crossing the street. And so we paused, chit chat for a minute, and then went across. I had that, you know, had that scarf around his neck. I always cool, you know what I'm saying? But I set out to say that his essay, Cult Nats versus Freaky Deep, like Gates said, you're trying to reconcile some things that may not be reconcilable. But unlike what Gates said, Greg Tate never gave up on the project. And I'll never forget Gil Scott Heron, when he made transition, Tate wrote a piece that's in Flyboy 2. I won't pause to read it now because I know we're out of time. But I remember reading that walking past Lincoln Center and I had come up for something and I had to sit down in the park right there across the street, little island parks, I forget the name of them. And I just sat there because he quoted at the end, near the end, Gil Scott Heron's Home is Where the Hatred Is. And if y'all know that song, Home is Where the Hatred Is, Gil Scott Heron, where he says, you know, you keep saying, kick it, quit it, Kick it with you. Have you ever tried? And he says, you know, y'all gonna sit here and watch me turn my sin sick soul inside out so that the world can watch me die. And Greg Tate writing about, he's basically almost saying, we're gonna end where we began, where you start us with Brazilian uh, Hurston. You don't know me. And you black people who claim to know me and then Tate writes this thing. What does it mean when we have some of our most brilliant culture keepers Parker writes this way about Charlie Parker. We said Parker would get on the bandstand every night and take that dull knife and basically uh, carve itself up and everybody watching the spectacle. Gil Scott Heron is on display in need of help and nobody intervening. 
this is the importance of institutions. And I remember Greg Tate writing that. And it's almost like everything he wrote was autobiographical, autobiographical, even as he said it about other people. There's really no good place to land this, but I think we could probably end where we begin. We're not trying to convince other people of our humanity, but those who see us the clearest must not only be nurtured and protected, it must be communicated that who we are is enough, but we've got to now build institutions to protect that in a world where they are literally dismantling themselves. And they're not going to save us, nor should we ask them to save us. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop there. I just want to say, I just want to say thank you. Um, again, this was the last, somebody reminded me, the last live class on YouTube for the year. So we'll see everyone. Oh, right, right. On the other side of 2022 uh, for our next class, 2022, uh, the second Saturday at noon here in YouTube. And then probably maybe one more after that. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> And then exclusively in Nubia, where we can build, you know, with yeah. people who want to build. Uh, this is not a spectator sport. We're not going to get to the promised land, sitting around, having great conversations and people feeling like they're in church and then leave and head to the liquor store and fornicate and do all of the things you do after you leave church on Sunday. This is not that. You are going to have to actually do some work here yeah. and bring your brick and be ready and willing and able to build the world that we want to live in uh because as that 12 year old said i'm tired too i'm tired yes, I'm, I'm tired, tired. I'm, I'm ready to see some real work being done and i love the folks that are because i'm li literally in the chat in nubia it's a completely different conversation going on there than here in youtube uh in the chat and it's you know it's home and i want to be home and i want to be able to be in my slippers with my, you know, with no, with my do rag on or whatever I'm wearing, and feel comfortable having these conversations that will actually lead us to something. You're gonna have a curriculum, Africana studies in narrative. Oh, yeah, we got that. We bringing, got that. We're bringing the meta nature in with no with profits coming through, teaching us hieroglyphics. We're gonna take trips right. together. We're gonna be doing all these things. Uh, we can't have any interlopers and no trolls and none, none of having a battle folks energy and not knowing what you know because you ain't raised right no this, <laughs> is, this is this is something different and if you're not ready for it that's fine you know there'll be plenty of content here for you to digest until you get, oh, yeah. get on solid food no question uh, but it's time for solid food and it's time for us to digest the things and and produce the things so that's where we're going we got movies to make and curriculum to build out and libraries to erect and uh, community centers to 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 build and classrooms to have all over the world, and I'm like really proud of the work that we've done so far. Oh but goodness. I see where we're going, and you know, even in the hub, which I don't talk about ever. Could you uh, please at least you know, say? Oh, you want you want to say that, say that something? Yeah, we'll say we'll say more in Nubia because again, that that's a space that I envisioned four years ago uh, after sitting at the Daily News and watching these billionaires create their own vessels to promote the things that they wanted to promote. You know, and now we got you know. Uh, billionaires owning newspapers all over the country, which they curate and they determine what's news and what's not. Multi-billion dollar companies determining what is news and newsworthy, and that's what we digest. And, you know, you bring up the City Sun and Amsterdam News and all of these small uh, Black-owned uh, outlets, and now we have a few, a handful. Uh, <laughs> I just got sent an article about The Root, which was a Skip Gates. Uh, uh, he yeah. was one of the founders of that. Yeah, that's which, right. Which, they just lost Michael Harriet. They just lost uh, Daniel Belton to, you know, 
and they're losing all of their great, you know, uh, culture meaning makers. Meaning what, do you, makers what do you think that's about? Because they the algorithms tell them that entertainment is where the money is. Entertainment, even here, people are like, oh, we only have nine hundred clicks. We don't give a damn about the algorithms on YouTube. This is not the this is not where we're building. So dang, click dang. thumbs up or don't. That's on you. <laughs> I mean, and, and I must. You know, I mean, you know. want you know, this is not where we're we're making our. You know, I'm not putting a stake down here. Do, do whatever. But yeah, it's a, it's a sad thing that, but, but that is what the algorithm, that's why we got Trump. He brought money in. The av advertisers love that. So if you're a news outlet, you are looking around like, where's the money? Here, all right, put them on 24 hours a day. Where's the money? And they capitalized his new thing he's launching? Yeah. I, I mean, to the tune of, I forget how much they, and I was reading in the FT, Financial Times did, is it? They, they, they about to sink, they about to, anyway, right. So, the, so you think this mass exodus is because they're switching to even lighter fare? Yeah, Ooh. they are. But there was a whole. I'll I'll share the article with you. Please, um, please, yeah. So the, that 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 entertainment wig snatching edges, all of the you go. know, all of that. That that is what is bringing. That's what we click on. But again, you are what you eat. So I can't necessarily blame these news outlets because they're only following the algorithms that we put in. So we're telling them. This is what we like, which is why we have all of the shade rooms and the media takeouts and all of the now news that now is entertainment. That's our that's our responsibility to tell the world who we are. And right. we do it here on YouTube, too. So all of the things y'all click on, you're telling them. So you, you oh, I didn't get any notification for this. But where's most of your time spent? If it's spent looking at, you know, who did what and divorced this and somebody called somebody something. And that's where you that's the algorithm that you have created. Right. Don't yeah, make it easy. Have, for them. Don't yeah, make it easy. Like, I'm just they're already going to nap because it never pops up. It never pops up in my YouTube. We my never YouTube. pop up. in my, So we know that they are manipulating the algorithm as well. But why are you making it easy for them? Why are they making it easy? I mean. You know what? It's interesting. We can't blame. We can't. I mean, it's well, that, that, that's, that's what I was going to say. You no, know, you full of dirty water. You don't know that you full of dirty water until you have a clean glass. And even then, sometimes you're like, that tastes funny. That tastes funny. I'm not used to. That's what, I, that's, what I, that's what I was going to say. I saw it when I was, again, I was looking at this State of the Black Union. We used to watch those things. Come on, C-SPAN. And, and let me tell you, let me, before you go, I love that. I mean, it was exciting. Right. It was like, oh, you could see, you know, all of the people together and they're having these deep conversations. No and it's just like church. Afterwards, what institutions were built out of those? You know, this is oh. something I can ask now. Like, what happened as a result of those great conversations? We felt good in the moment. And then we went back to our lives and nothing changed. Well, well I think part of it, too, is, like you say, when you that contract with Black America, remember Tavis did that? Yeah. It was published by Haki, you know, it was after World, I mean, Third World Press. And I think there was an attempt to build, but at the same time, you're right. We should learn from what has happened. But if we don't even remember that, that 13-year-old kid in 2007, there have been 14 years since then. He, <laughs> in other words, and as far, and it's so interesting you say what you said. Charles Ogletree spoke, as I said, Chuck D spoke. But right before that, I forget whether it was Cornell, Lerone Bennett was there that, 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 that evening session. And that's part of the reason I like watching those things because it reminds me of people who I loved, who helped train me. You know, and you see, like Charles Oakley is still around, but he's not in the best health. You know, I mean, obviously, so, yeah, you, you, exactly. So, 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 and the wrong Benson ancestor. But one of the things they said was, and Chuck D said this, referring to one of the earlier conversations. Chuck D said, "Y'all can't blame the young people. 
Don't blame them. So when you said that, no, come on back. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making a big point. I just want to, when you said that, if you have been drinking dirty water the whole time, we can't blame you when your breath stinks or when you start vomiting. You didn't have clean water. And it's going to taste funny at four. This is one of the things I really loved about Tate. Greg Tate literally tried to convene everybody in what he was writing. You can't. And I didn't even talk about this. We'll talk about this Monday night. I am going to talk about this. He, when he writes about Baraka, for example, and y'all, y'all go back and look at that debate he had with Greg Thomas about uh, Baraka and Ellison. Baraka was in constant movement, and, and this doesn't mean he's a saint or a god. Nobody is. Greg Tate could rain fire on anybody in the same sentence as he's complimenting them. But at some point, you got to pick. And the legacy, I think, of a Greg Tate for the generations that have come after, we're seeing now this turn toward rootless blackness in the sense of celebrating black culture and black love, but you're doing it in partnership with institutions that don't give a damn and are simply trying to wait you out. And as long as they're in control and, they, and there's a lot of pushback against that. I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't there because we're part of that, but also a lot of other people. We can't blame people unless we do. We create spaces. And so I want to thank you again. Well, I mean, 92 lessons in, I feel like um, we've done a lot. Uh, yeah. And- and and at some point, some of you have to. You can't serve two masters. You can't be here loving, amen, and stuff. And then tough. Mm, I'm, I'm gonna be over here, and you, you know, two masters. You can't serve two masters. And I'm also gonna give, drop another scripture. Can't put new wine into old wine skin. Oh, so we built an, a whole new wine skin. Yeah, we gonna put this new wine. Just another drink analogy for those of you, you know. Uh-huh. You know, um, right? I'm I, this. None of this could happen without you. Um, without the team, we have an am- amazing team. I want to thank Ayara. Um, what I want to talk in office hours about about what we're doing over in the hub, uh, because please, again, please. this is this is you know this is a long vision as well. You know, as as we build and and for some of you, I'm demonstrating. You know, things don't happen overnight. You know, brick by brick by brick, you got to put the foundation. You just can't run out there and talk about oh we're here. No, things take time. The the, the ground's got to settle. Things shift. You got to be able to to move and be nimble with that. Uh, so shout out to Ayara, who's the managing editor over the hub.news, doing an amazing job basically by herself, you know, um, and this is the future. You know, we have Cedric in Brazil. We got, you yes. know, Louis, uh, excuse me. Uh, um, I don't want to start naming people because, I'm, you know. Yeah, I'm no, no, no question. You start going. Yeah, because yeah. you got the team is strong and it's strong. just getting stronger. And, and, you, and, you oh, here we go. And, you know, people who. uh you, you know people who wait you got no no, no 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 not at all no i'm just saying this was andrew baker's book the poison of the nation okay the murder of robert okay. charles and the rise get, that's that all of you no, no, that's that that's that uh that's that book i was telling you about it's an excellent book y'all see i was probably eating some french fries or something so you see some grease things hilarious but uh but the point is though that i'm like dude this is not in fact i'm like look he said this the first book blah blah i'm saying this book just came out Stephen prince's book i'm like Dude, you you didn't know about no it's gonna no. mess up your hustle, but I ain't mad at you. But of course, I, I'm just saying that ain't even about so we got our this own. Is, this is the responsibility to remind people, right? To remember that's you right. Know, that, that was before this, so you're not you're not yeah no. This is black everything. plastic press, right? And yes. then, you know, I, I mean, I, I well, I, I'm gonna say less. We'll talk about that in office hours. All right, Thank office you. hours Monday. Uh, Uraeus is holding it down. Shout out Ray to us. Carl. Yeah, Uraeus. Yes. Uh, so that's that's where Dr. Carr regales. I mean, just 
everybody pops in and the conversation i sit in the i'm just sitting there just like now nah, you be in there you be in there mixing it up in the chat i love it yeah. it's beautiful I'm so messy so sometimes <laughs> in the chat yeah. and shout out to all of those of you who not new you don't know this but shout out to all the families and oh, all man. the children all these children coming into Nubia with their comments and questions and observations. Come on, y'all. It don't get no better than that. I don't know about you. When Olivia and them pop back up, I'm like, Larry, what's going on, sis? <laughs> and her brother this time. <laughs> oh, my God, with his deep-ass voice. Um, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I could tell that you're, you're plugged in in a way. Your, your race may be like, you know, he come in, so I may be tired, but you come in like, Nah. Like Voltron up in that, you know, nah. like it, it feels it feels different. It just feels different when I watch you on Monday sitting back. So let me, I yeah, just that's, can't. That's different. You know. We just sitting there. I mean, now y'all know. I mean, yeah, we we teach, we do faculty, and and I'll tell you, Professor, and I will say you say less now because as newbie is building, and all these HBCU faculty there, like, yo, when can we come over and offer this stuff we doing? I'm thinking. I'm talking about ethnography. If y'all want to do family histories, we got a couple of sisters who are the best in the business. Then I'm going to say less right now because, yeah, we'll talk about that. And then I'm saying who are the best in the business who are. <laughs> so, and, and next Saturday, live in Nubia, we got a surprise for you. So, y'all, uh, just letting y'all know ahead of time. It'll be a surprise, but y'all got to, you know, we go live every week in Nubia. For those of you who don't know, only right. first, uh, second Saturday uh, right here on YouTube. But let me say thank you, Dr. Carr. You have a wonderful rest of your week. I'll thank see you, you on Monday you in the Nubian streets. And I love everybody here in the YouTube family and especially you. the Nubian family. Yes. I'll see you over in Nubia as well. All right. See you. Love you. Love you.